What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, what are you doing? I'm enjoying a delicious treat from Bright's Bites. The dog training treats? The same. I've heard that Bright's Bites are not just healthy and nutritious for dogs, but they're so delicious, they're actually a very motivational form of training. They are indeed. We've tested and tried them on site, and they work just great. Well, how did you get a hold of those? Did you purchase them off of a website? I went to dogsquadcanineservices.com.au. That's where people should go to get themselves some Bright's Bites, healthy, nutritious, but also highly motivational dog training treats. Get them in your dog, y'all. Hey, Glenn. Yes. I figured out why Jason has a website. Why is that? He's not exactly the easiest bloke to talk to. Well, let's try that. Hello. Can I speak to uh, Jason Buffhead Furman, please? Uh, what are you doing, you? Well, you heard it here, folks. That's the kind of treatment you'll get if you actually dial Jason from Mindrick Dog Clip. So what you need to do if you want any leashes, tugs, harnesses, balls, reward toys, canine fitness and conditioning equipment, Herm Springer things, anything like that, head to EinswickDogQuip.com. That's E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com because you do not want to have to talk to this guy. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, and I'm joined in studio for our 100th episode by my co host, Mr. Glenn Cook. Isn't that absolutely unbelievable? It is. 100 episodes. 100 episodes under the belt. Yeah. I'm really proud of how far we've come. Mm -hmm. This is a huge milestone for us because we've said it periodically throughout the podcast is that it's challenged a few of our beliefs. Like we didn't believe that we would get this kind of following. We didn't believe that it would spread as far as it's got to. It's nice. I mean, my God, it's it's unbelievable where it's going and where it's going to go to, Mm -hmm. considering that we're well and truly in over half the countries of the world, like we're in 113 countries. Right. So we're well surpassed the halfway mark. Mm -hmm. We're at 113 last time I looked. We're well and truly over a quarter of a million downloads. Mm -hmm. And we've just got such a fantastic following and commitment from people in the canine industry. But it's not just people in the canine industry. There's you know, people that are starting to listen outside the canine in- yeah. industry as well, and they're starting to have an appreciation for what we're doing and what we're what we're all trying to achieve. Yeah, I've had some feedback from people message me who, you know, maybe their trainer said, "Oh, you know, listen to maybe it was the box episode or whatever, yep. like just an episode because it's relevant to what you, you know, whatever's relevant to them." And then they're like, "Oh, I just enjoy listening to it, and I'm still listening. I'm not a dog person. I've, yeah, I've, I have my dog, but I'm not a dog trainer or enthusiast, as as we call them. And they just listen for for the fun of it. So that's pretty cool. I really enjoy that. Mm. What's been the highlight of doing the podcast for you so far? What door has this opened that you've enjoyed the most? One thing, 
Yeah, the highlight. The highlight? Or multiple if you can't, if you don't want to say one. What I'm going to say, the highlight for me is reconnecting with people that I've sort of gone by the wayside with. Mm -hmm. I think that's been the wayside for me. Like it's, it's hard to put into words the appreciation I have for, I think, things that I thought or relationships that I thought had disintegrated in the past mm -hmm. have uh, reestablished from this. Mm -hmm. And I'm eternally grateful for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just because my dog training head doesn't turn off. Yep. Do you think that maybe you, I don't know the specifics of what you're talking about, but you've mentioned that a few times on the show. Do you think it's possible that you had a desensitization counter conditioning effect on somebody? Like, so imagine this person, whoever it is you think of, or multiple people when you say that. Yeah, it's a few people. That you then, you know, fell out with or whatever. And then they listen to the show. And then they've been progressively, the more show they listen to, they're desensitized and counter conditioned to you and your point of view where they can then open a dialogue again. I wouldn't rule that out. I think one of the discussion points that I've had with people in private conversation is that they've said that they have seen a different side of me through the podcast than mm -hmm. what they've seen of me periodically. So I feel that probably our interactions have been short and sweet and that's probably caused the breakdown in communication. Okay. Whereas through the podcast, their words, not mine, is that they've seen a vulnerability in me that they didn't see with me in the times that they've known me. But they've got to hear some stories. And I think, I think sometimes when you hear people's backstories a little bit from time to time, you do get a better appreciation of how that person was constructed, yeah. who they are, how they came to be. And I've certainly had that appreciation of people before because the person I know them of, the time I've got to know them is a snapshot of who they really are. It's yeah. not who they are all the time. And when I've actually taken the time to get to know people and people said to me, look, I feel like I got to know you through the podcast. Whereas before I didn't know who you were. I didn't know what you stood for or what you're about. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they say listening to you and Pat – we're kind of getting backstory that's filling in a lot of blanks and a lot of gaps. So I think that's been important for a lot of people because it, you know yourself, when we've met people, they go, it's like I've known you forever. And they've got to share a, a few of our little life journeys and things that we've done and experiences that we've had along the way. And I mean, there's a lot more that people don't know about, which we may or may not reveal in upcoming shows or so forth, but it's been a fun ride. It's been really cool to get to tell people some of the experiences of things that have happened over the years, you mm -hmm. know, because like I said, the legacy that I want to leave people is that we're leaving this industry in a better place. Mm -hmm. Something you said then uh, really resonates with me as I travel around teaching. Um, people often say to me, I know you don't know me, but I feel like I know you really well. Yep. And we do talk about a lot of personal stuff here. Mm. Like I've talked about the time I was uh, sexually assaulted by a dolphin. Yes. That, <laughs> which we've got an episode on. You know, like in that. Dolphin. And that, not that that's like a personal story or anything, but it, like people really know a lot about my, my history um, yep. from this. And I find that quite flattering. People say, oh, you don't know me, but I, I know you really well. And I feel like I've known you for a long time because they've been listening to the show for however long we've been doing, 100 episodes. You know, I take that at face value, but then over the next couple of hours, I realize they really do know me really well. Yep. And so I kind of find that it's, it's quite flattering. It I is, think, isn't it? It's well, really, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it lets me know that maybe we are on the right track, that it's not, you know, this, this isn't, we get in front of the microphones and we go, okay, we're about to record, like, get your shit together. Let's pretend to be these two guys. Like, people really understanding, like, 
This is just us. But we're not pretending to be anyone. That's what I'm saying. That's the thing is that who we are and what we've been talking about is our genuine selves. Yeah. Like we've said stupid things on this and we've had to go back and correct it. You know, we've had our opinions and things challenged. There's been high emotions before. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I've Mm. sat in this chair and bawled my eyes out like a big sissy. Not a a sissy. It was absolutely validated. Yeah, well, anyway, yeah, so I think that we- And that's the thing is that that vulnerability and that- Genuine persona is, I think, what people have appreciated because there have been times where you and I have been less authentic and people have written in about it and said, you know, like, keep it real. That's Mm. what we like about your show. We don't want to hear it become commercialized or anything like that. We we love the the real raw Glenn and Pat relationship. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's been a hell of a ride. So what what's your crowning moment? I think what I enjoy the podcast for me has just opened so many doors. Mm. And I have access to people that 100 episodes ago I didn't have access to. People ring me, world-famous dog trainers, you know, people who are uh, the absolute pinnacle of the game, legends of the industry might just call me to talk shit. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Like people that we've never been able to reach or speak yeah. to or, you know, they've kind of been out of reach mm-hmm. uh, now within re- – and they're, they're some people that are our friends now. Yeah. You know, like we actually know them. We're on – you know, like there's an abundance of people now that I've thought I can just pick up a phone to them and call them anytime. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So I think for me, that's been that the, the podcast itself, I really enjoy the conversations that I have with people and the access that that's given us yeah. um, into the, the industry. But mostly I really enjoy, I think for myself, like I'm, I'm pretty good with dogs. Like I'm not exceptional by any stretch of the imagination. I'm only pretty good. But what I am really good at is I'm a really good teacher and I really mm-hmm. enjoy teaching. Yep. And I, I'm very good at identifying what people are doing, breaking it down, replicating it to a point, and then being able to t- pass that on and teach it. And I, I, lo- I fucking love doing that. It's yep. like I've, so I've really felt like I've hit my stride and found my passion. And that's all through this podcast for sure. Mm. And we've talked about this before. But yeah. But it's, it's nice to highlight it, isn't it? Yeah. For our like if you're showing episode, appreciation to something, that, that's, yeah. there, there's a lot of appreciation, as is the amount of guests that we've had that have been that have made themselves available to come yeah, on the show right. for yeah, us. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've had a few people on here multiple amounts of times. You're going to hear from some people that we've asked a, a question to along the way, which is, yeah. and we couldn't get everybody we wanted to all at the same time. It's just hell of difficult to try and well, make so, that happen. So let's go back a step. When we went down to Canberra and we went and saw Uncle Geordie P., we were talking in the car about how you want to do something big for our 100th episode. Mm-hmm. And we, we came up with the question of what tool, technique, information, or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? Yep. And so we wanted to ask that of as many people as we could. Yep. The problem was we had that idea like sort of in the 70s and we're like, oh, it's heaps of time. That's six months away. But it, it really has crept up. And so when did you start recording all of these? Only a Probably about three weeks ago. Yeah, right. And so we've just been incredibly busy people. Like yeah. both of us are on the hop all the time. Yeah, you know, totally. it's, it's just like you're a very busy guy in your own right and I'm a very busy guy in my own right. And then um, squeezing this podcast in between, which is is making us very busy at the same time. Yeah. Like this is like our third job basically. Yeah. You know, like we've got other jobs that we do. We've got our full-time jobs, our sports and the podcast and everything like that. And it's all important. It's all fabulous. And we're all, you know, we're not, I'm not begrudging it at all. I'm actually really happy the way things are working out. That's great. But 
trying to make everything happen and trying to get all those people together when we've got all this compounding on top of us, it, yeah, it's a difficult task. Yeah. So you're about to hear a whole bunch of, Glenn is the one asking the questions mostly because he's fit this into times when we could with these people rather than having to get the back and forth and maybe out here to, to do it. Yep. So you're about to hear Glenn ask the question of some what would you say? Some monsters in the industry, yep. as well as yeah, just some key people. Yeah, definitely. as well as mm. just some friends of ours, right? Yep. Of uh, what tool, technique, information, or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? Yep. So here that comes. The one thing I just wanted to say before we kick that off, you're talking about people involved in the show, and and it all comes down to the only reason that we're continuing to do this is because people are listening, right? We yep. have a, a, a very large listener base that we're blessed to have. But what I'm truly unbelievably thankful for is the people on Patreon who sling us a few bucks a month. And, and hasn't that made? It's like I, I, We say it all the time and we don't say it in a contrived way. Like we actually mean it like that changed the whole dynamic for what we're trying to do. Yeah. And the lovely thing is, is there's so many people out there who say, like I've had people out there go, I haven't even had time to listen to Patreon, but you guys deserve it so much for everything that you give and everything that you're trying to do in this industry for all of us that I'm just going to give you 10 or 20 bucks a, a month or whatever, just because we believe in what you're doing. Yeah. And for you guys, you have my, you have our eternal thanks for what you're doing. And I can't tell you, it's like, it's a very heartfelt appreciation I'm trying to convey here because it has made an enormous difference to what we're doing and how we can get the show broadcast and all the bills that we can manage to pay with it and everything. So yeah please know that you have made a significant difference in the canine paradigm. Yeah, that's right. I really appreciate you guys. And if you're in there in Patreon, you you will have noticed, like I, I'm trying to spend more time in that platform because, you know, I really feel like we owe you guys. There's people contributing in there and I'm trying to, we said that we were going to have an extra educational episode per month and mm. I'm really trying to put out some super high quality content. The Which best you are, that I can and muster. people are happy with it. There's yeah, been really totally, good yeah. feedback. Yeah, people are really happy mm. with that. But I'm really focusing on that quite a bit, trying to put out some some really high quality stuff for you guys and stuff that a little bit, the last few have kind of been um, kind of musings of mine. So that it, what you're kind of witnessing in those is often me thinking out loud and I'll have an idea on something. It's something that I don't normally get to teach because it might be really nuanced about one tiny little aspect, like but the last passion. one on reinforcement. And so I start the camera rolling and I think it out live in front of you guys and and, and had some great feedback on that. So yeah, for, for everybody listening, thank you all very much. You guys make the show go around, but for you guys on Patreon, it really, really, truly heartfelt. Thank you. Yeah. We'll never really, I don't think we could adequately convey our thanks absolutely and there's one person we've attracted some sponsors which again you have our eternal thanks there is one person i want to give a special shout out to which is jason Furman. yeah because jason jumped on the show before we became well known from the first episode from he, the first episode jay like we messaged. actually we actually blocked him because he he did speak to pat originally but we sort of thought that it was a bit contrived to put a sponsor on the show when we were new and we're just a couple of dickheads with microphones. Yeah, which we still are. Which we still are. But the re- but the reality is, is Jason believed right from the get-go. Like he said, you guys are going to make it. I believe in you. And he stood by us right from the get-go. So, Jason, I know you are a bullfed and a lovable one at that. But thanks, mate, because, uh, yeah, you did stand by us. You have believed in us and you've stuck by us all this time. And if you want to go and get yourself a great product, get online and go to ironswick.com and you can pick up any sort of dog training. Well, he's got a range of dog training uh, products that you can utilize in your business or for your training services. But that's true. Support us by supporting our sponsors. Exactly. That's it. All right. 
let's kick off those uh, interviews. Yep. All right. So we're going to welcome to the show Heather Beck, who we've done an interview with already. And I'm going to ask you the question I've been asking the other trainers. What tool, technique, information or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? Well, thank you, Glenn, for having me back. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, that's that's a pretty deep question, um, but I guess I'll start with just the the first part of it, which was tool. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely known for working with head halters, and I would say that that probably has had a really significant impact on my career, just because I kind of think it gave me a nice niche, um, and also led me to design and invent my own leash and head halter, the transitional leash. So I think that that uh, that really had an impact on me. Um, I worked with horses growing up, so. It just made sense to me that quadrupeds are led by head control, um, and I translated a lot of that over into uh, what I was working on with dogs. So that also led me through the techniques that I use on dogs, which is a lot of the stuff I used with horses as well, which is more of a you know, pressure on, pressure off mentality, and that uh, worked really well with the head halter mm-hmm. and just went, just went hand in hand. Gosh, information or realization, I would say probably, and I know you guys are just starting to to appreciate this, but probably the best information that I had ever been shared that made the hugest impact on me was actually the information about joining the IACP and also attending the conference. And I immediately, as found, uh, once I found out about it and started attending uh, the conference and even workshops associated with that um, had the biggest influence on my career. So I, uh, I really, really, really appreciate the IACP and everything that it's done for me. And I'm so happy you guys have found the IACP and are embracing it. It's really great to watch it expand. You know, it's an international organization. So having Australians just seems pretty <laughs> natural. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know whether we really qualify as internationals because we're a little <laughs> island on our own, but we're right. certainly making an impact for sure. That's for sure. Yeah, and it's been fantastic. I've gotten to work with Pat on the legislative committee. That's been really great, and you've just uh, you get to see how the sausage is made uh, on the board of directors. So yeah, I like be... that analogy. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> Well, I say it to everybody, um, you know, as they kind of jump into the board and I'm pretty sure it's been proven pretty well. You know, it's you just really don't realize what's going on in an organization until you actually get into the guts of it and you see how everything happens and all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I mean, I'm sure by after conference next year, you're going to be exhausted and you're going to have a, a really true appreciation of all the work that goes on behind the scenes you know, not just putting conference together, but just everything, you know, it's really, uh, it's, it's impressive. It's impressive. Yeah. Well, I do a similar role in Australia. Well, I have done over Mm -hmm. the last three years to a lesser scale, but I've been involved in a group called the Pet Industry Association of Australia, where I was sitting on the board of directors for boarding, daycare, pet sitting and training. And that was primarily my focus area. So I kind of have a little understanding of it. And, you know, you get to see behind the curtain and see how it all runs. So, yeah, it's an impressive organization and there's an immense amount of work. And how long did you sit on the board for? It definitely wasn't long because I actually filled another position when Bob Jervis actually um, left the board. So I was on the board for about a year and a half. And that was that was enough for me. I had a good time, but I was I was so busy um, it was it was kind of a weird time on the board too, but it was uh, I definitely learned a lot. Um, I was on the board with some really fantastic people, obviously Martin, uh, Mark Goldberg, 
uh, Pat Trichter, uh, Tawny McBee. Uh, there was definitely a lot of great people on that board when I was there. But uh, I don't think at the time that I was on the board, I don't know that I was actually prepared to be there yet. You know, I think if I was on the board now, things would be things would be a little bit differently or a little bit different, I think. But I think then I just wasn't really as prepared as I would be now. But I think I'm filling a pretty significant role by um, being part of the legislative committee. So and the okay. chair of the, that committee. Yeah, that's cool. So, Heather, let me just steer this in a in a in just a slight different direction for a minute. I want to ask you a question based on the questions that we've been asking all the training personalities that we've had on the show. When in your career did you have an epiphany that it's starting to make sense to you? Like at what stage were you or where were you or what was happening in your career where you thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm finally understanding this. I'm connecting and I'm in the place I really need to be to make a difference. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, I think I've actually had a lot of those over my career, but I think some of the times where it really really was impactful and clicked for me was when, you know, somebody would be handling a dog and really, really struggling with that, that animal, you know, even another trainer Mm. um, at a workshop or something. And then just being able to, to put my hands on that dog and be able to almost immediately see the change in the animal. And that was like, it's such a huge confidence boost, you know, when all of a sudden you see the change that you're looking for, whether it's for them to soften or for them to be more engaged or, you know, whatever that you're looking for, but it just happens, you know, that it's like all of a sudden you have this amazing connection between you and the animal and being able to just see that I was capable to do something that other people were really struggling with, even other trainers, mm. was probably those times that I it really kind of clicked with me. And I, I remember one time it, it happened once when I was doing some e-collar work with a, a student that was out doing a shadow program with me. And, and it was, you know, I was like, gosh, what? you know, and sometimes it was the disconnect of how can I teach them better? And I just wanted to see if the dog was being a jerk or if it was how the person was handling the dog. And it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the dog being a jerk. And it was just another realization that I needed to be better and how to communicate that so that they could replicate what I was doing as well. So, mm. but that's usually been the biggest realization is just, just having those connections and having it happen almost instantaneously when you have a dog around you or, or you're are in that scenario. And it just, it, it gives me so much energy when that happens, you know, I love it. So how long's your career actually spanned for now entirely from the, the time you first started <laughs> until now? 1995 yep. um, was when I first started working in shelters and rescues. So however many years that is, and that's about uh, 25 you years. Know, yeah. And so I dove head first into that. I started fostering pretty much immediately, which uh, if you've never gotten a chance to foster dogs from the shelter in your own home, it's very, uh, it's interesting. And at the time I didn't quite know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about crate training. I didn't know anything about, you know, feeding dogs separately. I had, uh, that was a lot of my, uh, my stomping ground was learning through fostering dogs and working in shelters and rescue and, and animal control. And I did that for many, many years um, before I uh, made the switch into training. Mm. If you could take yourself back in time, what would you change? <sighs> if I could take myself back in time, uh, there's so there's some really, really, really miserable things I saw when I was working in shelters and rescue, especially working with animal control and just really kind of a, a lot of things that I wish I could unsee or unknow, but I don't know that I would actually want to change that because it really has 
created who I am, you know, when I do talk about, you know, mm. working with difficult and aggressive dogs and, you know, some of the management that might come along with that. And, you know, the, the reality of actually rehabbing a, a truly difficult dog, you know, a lot of that stuff kind of comes from that and gave me that perspective, you know, cause I had the perspective, you know, I was bright eyed and bushy tailed yep. and now I'm evil and depressed. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, no it just gives you a, a different perspective. So it just makes it you know, but there's a lot of things that I, I wish I didn't know and I wish I hadn't seen, you know, so. Did you ever experience burnout in your career? Always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it comes in waves. I think I've, I've been doing this long enough that I realized that it does come in waves yep. and I try and keep, you know, my students, my training students, and then also even my staff and my business, you know, I want them to understand that things come in waves, you know, and things will get hard and things will get easy and things will get hard and things will get easy Mm. and how you can actually balance that so that you're not really reaching a breaking point. You know, I had a pretty severe breaking point a couple of years ago and it was really, I was, I was damn close to quitting. So I'm, I'm glad I I powered through that because I'm really, I'm not a quitter. I mean, it's not who I am. And that's what kept driving me forward was just all the people that were, on my ass at the time that wanted me to fail, I just kind of wanted to say, screw you, I'm, I'm not going to fail. You know, I, I want to prove to you that I'm not going to fail. And that's, that's kind of what kept me driving. But yeah, burnout is, is very real. And I know a lot of people that have come and gone in this, in this profession, I've seen it every, every day. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. It's an important aspect to come to terms with. Is it we're all created differently. You know, some people handle pressure and stress differently, but it's important to know that this industry does take a lot out of you because it's very emotionally bearing at times. Um, Mm -hmm. And especially if you are a caring soul and most people who do get into training are caring souls, they're people who give a shit. So, you know, we are prone to burn out when we care deeply about things and it's important to know how to manage that. And that's why I think people like Bertie Oshidi are very important to our industry because she's not, primarily just there for the dogs her primary role is for the people who are in the dogs oh absolutely absolutely i was so happy to meet birdie unfortunately i did not get to see her presentation because tara isaacson i hate that the white papers are like against each other and tara is uh, right in my area she's one of my my personal clients she's a, a great friend so of course i had to go support her um, but I did get a chance to uh, chat with Birdie and I, and I hope that she comes back um, to the conference. I would actually, I would love to see her present at conference. I think she has a lot to offer. So I would love to see her be invited back just for the human side of things. You know, Absolutely. I think that is so, so, so important. The human side is that's, what's going to keep you from burning out, you know, is making sure that you are connecting with your human side of yourself rather than the emotional, you know, side that really plays a huge part in what we do every day in this career and profession. Mm. And what advice would you give to a lot of the new trainers who are up and coming? I mean, there's a lot of really bright eyed people that I met during the (laughs) ISCP conference. And I think it's important for, you know, some of the older heads in the industry to offer some good advice to them. What would you give to them? I would say just be, you know, be patient, really be kind of a a black hole of sucking of information. (laughs) You know, that was how people that was how people describe me when I was younger, you know, as basically they're like, wow, you're just doing everything, aren't you? And so I, I really was I wanted to learn everything. I wanted to know everything. I tried to keep myself in check. Um, anytime I didn't, I would get mauled by a dog. (laughs) So, so, (laughs) you know, I would say that, um, just be patient, you know, be patient in your career. 
Um, but I know if I know there's a lot of people out there a lot like me that um, it's hard to be patient. And so I we want to touch the hot stove. And no matter what I say as a veteran in this industry, they'll always call me after they get bit by a dog or, you know, attacked or have a really bad, horrible client because, um, you know, they're they're having to walk their own path and walk their own journey. So I'm, I'm here to be supportive. So I think maybe don't have to listen to everything I say, but just know that, you know, if you are struggling, don't hesitate to reach out to some of the people that have been there because they're going to understand, you know, not everybody can understand, but they will understand. Um, and I'll understand. I mean, I get a lot of calls after people touch the hot stove. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I value that. I think that's a good answer. I think that there's a lot of people I see in forums and, you know, like even after the conferences, people said, I really wanted to talk about this, but I didn't have the courage to do so. Or I really wanted to come up and meet that person and pick their brain, but I was too scared to approach them. And that's something that, you know, even at next conference, I'm hoping to change, even through the, the ability of having a podcast to talk to people. I'm trying to encourage people, you know, don't sit in the shadows and wait for the information to magically appear on your lap. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's been, I mean, this is just like I said, this is my 14th year, I think that I've been at the conference. It is a never ending battle of, you know, people feeling that way. Um, so I hope that people do kind of get past that a little bit, you know, like pull up your, you know, pull up your panties and go say hi, you know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen, you know, and, and sometimes people have to understand too. I've had people come back to me after a couple of years or like, well, you never talked to me. And I was like, well, wait a second, this is a two way street. Like I'm, I'm readily available. It's not like I ever try and, you know, say, you know, walk away from somebody. But if you come and say hi to me, I'm going to say hi. But, you know, as the conference is getting bigger, it's much more difficult because, you know, there's so many people there. And especially for some of us that people really recognize and want to talk to, it can be it can be very draining for us. I am definitely a total introvert, no matter what people think they know about me, I can play extrovert really well, but mm. I get burnt out very, very quickly. And I, I do have to go and take some time out. And sometimes when I get to that, that point, I do just kind of have to walk away and say, Hey, it's, it's great to meet you, you know, and I, but I do really try and spend as much time. I want people to know that I, I do value that they came and said hi to me, that I, I'm excited to talk to them. I mean, I remember everybody's name that I met this last year for the first time. And I'm, I'm excited because now they're reaching out to me on Facebook and we can connect that way as well. So that's been good. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, listen, thank you very much for joining us and uh, appreciate this is going to be episode 100. So I really appreciate that you've been a part of that. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited for you guys. I love your podcast. I love everything you guys are doing. Um, keep up the great work and congratulations on your 100th episode. Thank you so much, Heather. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so joining us all the way over from Sanford in the USA, we've got the godfather of PSA himself, Jerry Bradshaw. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure as always. To, uh, to be on with you. We were over there, as you know, in Hanover with Sean and Janet, and you were conducting a trial yourself, and we didn't manage to cross paths, which was a shame, but you're a busy man as always. Yes, sir. I've been traveling a lot this summer, honestly. Like, started in May, and, uh, you know, went to Canada, went to Australia for close to three weeks, came back, went to South Africa, back to Canada and Vancouver, little side trips along the way so it's kind of nice to uh actually be home for a little while i, I thought my dog was going to be ready to uh to be at janet's uh, trial but uh, my uh, my good sense overrode my desire to uh 
take the road trip. (laughs) (laughs) I stayed home home and tried to to keep training because I figure I'm going to just try and get ready for nationals and roll the dice there. Yeah, fantastic. I guess that sometimes you... It's a quote that I often tell people. It's it's often best not to let your ambitions get mixed up with your capabilities. Sometimes when you when you're not quite there, it was look. It was the same for me with Randy when I was going to do his twos when you were out. I thought you know yeah. he's just not ready for it. I got lazy and I didn't put the time into him, you know. And since then I've picked up his training again and started all over. But you know I just didn't want to put on a poor show and embarrass myself and and especially the dog. He doesn't deserve that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I um. I do a good job at embarrassing myself. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I figured I shouldn't embarrass my dog as well. So I, I stayed home. But yeah, we're going to give it a go at nationals. And uh, we got the countdown now on six weeks. So still I, some um, training to do. I think Pat's going to head over for the nationals this year too. So I think he's uh, catching up with all you guys over there. That's terrific. We've got uh, contingents from South Africa coming too. So we'll have Australia and South Africa national. Fantastic. Geez, it's a really fast-growing sport around the world now, isn't it? Yeah, we're and, you know, we don't even count the Canadians. You know what I mean? Like, we know there's Canadians coming, but it's like we don't even consider them another country. Ooh, They're just like our oh, polite, that's salty. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just our polite neighbors to the north. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Just, uh, we, yeah. so yeah, so we'll have, you know, we'll have Canada, Australia, and uh, South Africa. So it'll be pretty exciting. Last year we had the um, folks from Northern Ireland, so. Um, now we've got uh, got three of the international regions represented, and hopefully it'll get to be more in coming years for sure. Oh, that's fantastic! Speaking of Canadians, um, when we were over there, I met somebody who's been doing some training with you—a lady called Janet Hanley. Oh yeah, we I had a blast Janet with her. She she is hysterical. She is crazy. <laughs> Why? <laughs> right. But like, <clears throat> I've been up there a couple times for seminar trials and stuff. And, uh, her and Wayne are great hosts. Like. Hanging out with them is a good time. I don't even know if you got to meet her significant other, but he's uh, he's awesome too. No, and I didn't get to the, meet him. Uh, he's quite the grill master. So, like when you stay at their house, like he like cooks all kinds of stuff on the grill. It's, it's great. But Janice, a uh, great person, and uh, she's come out to a lot of training that we've done and uh, traveled down here. And, um, I was able to uh, get a couple of dogs for her over the past couple of years. So, oh, good. I'm glad you got to meet her. She's really, really super lady. Yeah, I got to meet her and she let me work her dog. So she was having some problems with a bitch after uh, it had an exploded tooth uh, in its head after uh, an accident. But um, we managed to get her back on a bite wedge, which she was pretty happy about, which uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Good. So I've got a question for you and I've thrown it at you already and, and uh, everybody else I've sort of thrown out has balked at it a little bit because it's quite a deep question about you and your time in the industry. And the question is, what tool technique, information, or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? Well, I think the, the, like when I, when I hear a question like that, the first thing that comes to our mind is I would not say tools simply because tools are always changing, evolving. I think for me it has to be, you know, it's not really techniques because techniques change as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what we know about dogs, what we know about science of learning, uh, canine learning, and so forth. The techniques have changed a lot over the time that I've been in. And I really think for me, um, it's been sort of uh, maybe a series of realizations about things, um, some some in terms of training, some in terms of business. So I'll, I'll give you one training one and one business one. Yeah, that sounds good. So I think when I first started, I was 
you know, obviously kind of an academic guy. So, you know, the things that appeal to me, conditioning theory, you know, operant conditioning, classical conditioning, really understanding the theory behind canine learning. And I think uh, one of the first realizations I made was, uh, and I won't name the person, but I was watching a video of somebody doing some clicker training and it's, um, you know, they're, they're getting dogs to touch a touch stick or something like that. And then clicking and like throwing food on the ground and the dog would eat it. And then they would, you know, the dog would you know do the next series in the behavior and click and throw some food on the ground. And I think that the realization that struck me and that was early in my career was at least with that person and how they were training, there seemed to be really no relationship going on with mm. the animal that they were working with. And over the, I think as I've grown as a trainer and got older, I used to kind of scoff when people talked about like a dog having like trust issues with your handler. You know, I would, I, I thought a little bit more as, you know, dogs were input output biological machines basically where, you know, you put into them and they get out to you and yep. follow certain rules and, and so forth. And, and I think as, you know, as I sort of matured in, in my training, I realized how important the relationship of the trainer to the dog is. And, and not just through the training, but, you know, just through the general interaction with your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone through phases where I've been so busy that, you know, I've, I've almost had people have to valet my dogs for me a little <laughs> bit. And then, you know, more, much more recently, as I've been like struggling with my PSA 3, my closer interaction with my dog, you know, taking them to work with me every day, taking them out in the field with me every day, you know, and, uh, and not just taking them out, training them and putting them away, but like, you know, spending time with them and that sort of thing, like has really, that's been a big realization for me throughout my career is how much that particular piece really matters a lot. And then, you know, and I see it where, you know, you can quickly get relationships with the dog, even as a, a trainer doing, you know, doing inboard training and, and it goes back to the owners and they struggle and you realize really most of why that dog works for that particular trainer is, you know, some of it is the rules, some of it is the expectations on the dog's part that this person is predictable and they understand what's required of them and, you know, and, 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 and they follow rules. But a lot of it too is just the, you know, just the trust that exists between that dog and that trainer mm-hmm. that's been developed through the training. And so, that was, you know, that's, that's been something that, you know, I think about quite a lot uh, when I watch people who struggle with training their dogs or I watch people who are struggling with getting their dogs to do things that they want them to do. So, so it's I more about that, the that really, holistic relationship overall. Yeah, you know, I, 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 think, I think that matters sometimes more than, than we think because I, I think we live in a, a dog training world right now that is so mm-hmm. technique driven. Everybody wants to know the how, you know, what are the steps, what's the training progression, how do you do this, and so forth, and and so much of it really, and you know, because you've been in a long time, so much of it boils down to feel and interaction and just that that communication that a good trainer has with mm. the animal uh, that really is on that sort of personal level where the dog finds trust in the relationship as well as um, predictability in terms of how that they expect that that trainer or handler to work with the dog. Yep. Yeah, I think that's sage advice. A lot of people who have really done deep dives into their training career and now coming to terms with the relationship of the dog where 
in the early days uh, when I first started kicking off in training, I guess there was a lot of people who didn't really investigate that whole process of spending time with the dog and having a, like I said, that holistic relationship with the dog. But the more that I've expanded into the career of training and, and learning different styles and learning different approaches from other people, it's as you said, you know, they're, they're finding a lot of importance in building on that relationship with the dog and getting to know the dog a lot better. Yeah, like, you know, for me, you know, my dogs haven't always, like, lived in the house or anything like that. Some of them weren't fit for uh, that type of that type of. Yeah, I know, uh, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the, you know, like, the, the, I think the thing for me is, you know, when I do spend time with my dogs and I work with them and I have them out, you know, we're sort of taking a little walk at lunch or whatever to, you know, to, to use the restroom or whatever. Yeah, even before training starts, that kind of thing. Just the, um, you know, just just that interaction that happens uh, prior to coming on the field. It's a lot of it. A lot of it is in the training. You know, I mean, a lot of it is just sort of, you know, the give and take. The, you know, sometimes letting them get away with little things, not being, you know, not being the, uh, not being the obedience Nazi all the time. Mm. You know, and also, you know, also. Uh, like, you know, being in the, you know, like being in the right frame of mind, like my worst training sessions have always been when I haven't been in a good frame of mind. I go out and try and save my dog. Like I've learned over the years to, you know, if I'm not feeling it, if I'm, I'm not present, maybe just put them on the treadmill or go for a run or something like that. And, you know, leave it at that and not really, not really try and interact if I'm not ready to interact or I'm not in the frame of mind. To. My dogs always, the dogs are always ready to interact. You know what I mean? Like they're, they always seem to be in the right frame of mind for the most part, but sometimes we're not, you know, we got other things on our mind, that kind of thing, especially if you're in a, a business person and you got a lot of things weighing on you at, at different times. So yeah, like that's, that's a, that's a big, I think it's a big deal. Uh, you don't have to make your dogs couch potatoes by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I really think that how you interact with them, you know, how you communicate with them, how you touch them, like all that stuff really means a lot. And has become more meaningful to me the more um, time I've spent training competition dogs and trying to get back to the to the top of the game. You know, what I mean, like that's always been a uh, been an important piece of it for me. Yeah, I definitely think that that's definitely a pearl right there on your own frame of mind. I don't think people consider the implication that coming out in a bad mood or if, you know just a an emotional state sometimes can have an impact on your dogs. You know, we're not just kicking over a motorbike and jumping on it and going for a ride. We're actually dealing with something that is emotional and does respond to our emotional state of mind as well. For sure, for sure. I guess, and then the other the other realization that I would uh, tell people is from a from an industry standpoint, when I realized that uh, everything changes, right? Yeah, like everything changes all the time, and be able to like I, I've in the last probably 10 years, I really mastered the ability to roll with those changes, whether it's, you know, employees leaving or coming in or, you know, whatever those things happen to be, you know, great customer interactions, you know, uh, troublesome customers that you're dealing with. Um, I had a couple of those this week, um, <laughs> you know, that like that, and just realizing that that, that kind of stuff is always, always going to come it's always going to go uh it's always going to have a beginning it's always going to have an end like all these things have a life cycle and i think you have to you have to be uh be cool with uh, the dynamism you know that that is a business mm. and um I, I know i know a lot of people who get really 
they are really upset when changes happen. It could be, you know, as simple as, you know, a business partner deciding to like sever a relationship or, you know, uh, you know, somebody who you really depend on in terms of as a trainer or something like that. People you know, can come and go. And I think, you know, for, for their own reasons, sometimes that happens. Um, you know, people decide, you know, there's something better for them in, in life. And things change, and I think as as a business owner, like you're kind of married to your business. Yep. But you're like the one part of it that doesn't change, you know. So in 25 years, like I, you know, the one constant at Target has been me. Everything else is turned over at some point. Yep. And a lot of times, you know, you think that's a bad thing that's happening, and it turns out to be one of the better things that's happened. So I think I really think the uh, you know the uh, being able to adapt to changes as they as they come is really um and not get emotional about it not you know not not worry so much about it i mean of course you're going to worry when things change i mean it's, it's normal it's natural but i think being able to uh to understand that that's just like part of part of the the flow of life is change you know like you know psa started out tiny it's growing it's growing it's growing so many more people are getting into it now we've added American Shooten into it, like that thing, that whole dynamic of that business is, you know, has been changing over time and mostly for the better, mm. you know, but you know, the growth, the growth is also a little, a little daunting sometimes, you know, and you realize people all over the world are wanting to get involved. And, you know, we had what, three trials going on this weekend alone, one, you know, one in Canada and two in the United States, mm. you know, so like that, you know, that whole thing has been changing. You know, your business changes, sometimes it grows, sometimes it shrinks a little bit, sometimes, you know, you uh, you change personnel, that, that sort of stuff. Sometimes people stay for, for the long haul. Um, but being able to deal with those changes is such an important part of, like, being happy yep. in your life and in the industry, you know what I mean? Because it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, dogs come and go. Those are huge changes in your life. You know what I mean? I think, you know, unfortunately, that's, one of the things about being in this business is, you know, you, if you have a, you know, a 20 or a 30 year career in this business, um, you know, you're going to, you're, you're going to have, a lot of dogs. you're going to see a lot of dogs. You're going to have great dogs. You're going to mm. lose a lot of great dogs. And as, as I look back and, you know, oftentimes those, uh, at lunch today, I was, I had some of my students who were hanging, hanging with me and just like telling, telling them stories about some of the, some of those old dogs mm. that I had and the trials and tribulations and how they, embarrassed me or you scared me or whatever it might, <laughs> yeah. might be. Um, now you look back on, you know, like at the time losing those dogs was, was uh, such a horrible uh, experience. There's yours, right? Yeah. The wall um, of dogs. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, losing them, you know, it was painful and, and, and emotional and mm. that kind of thing. And then, you know, you reach a certain point, you look back, you know, like I always tell people who lose dogs, like you're, it's going to be okay one day because you're going to always, you're going to look back and always remember as a fond memory. You know? and, Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, that's just, that's just kind of, that's just kind of how life goes, you know, and I think it happens a lot in the dog businesses. Unfortunately, you know, our, uh, our esteemed partners, you know, don't, they just don't live the same lifespan that we do. So, um, but yeah, being, uh, being good with the realization that change is going to happen and, and you have to adapt to it. And, and a lot of times when those changes happen, like better things, you know, come, uh, down the road. Mm. Uh, we always tend to think the worst, you know, and I think, uh, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot more optimistic about things. And when changes come to look at those rather as opportunities necessarily, rather than just, uh, you 
know, just events that are happening to me. You know, you can't always change what happens, but you certainly can change how you react to it and, and, uh, and have an impact on it for the positive. So, yeah, I think uh, it's a little, a little philosophical uh, answer to your question. I think if I think you know, in the at the end of the day, if, uh, if we couldn't use certain techniques or certain tools got banned, like we would still be dog trainers and we'd still figure out a way to do all the things that we want to do as best that we possibly can. But um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of other things that I think that haunt people in, in their training or in their you know in their business and so forth. That uh, you know, so hopefully that advice will resonate with some people. Well, mate, all the additional sub-questions I was going to ask you, I think you ticked all the boxes in them. You went through everything beautifully. So I really appreciate your time, mate, because it's important. You know, you've been a successful business guy. You've started several different club-based trials up or club-based events up, PSA, American Schutzen. You know, you've been involved in a lot of law enforcement agencies like providing and, and selling dogs around, definitely around the United States and around the world, I believe, as well. You've been providing dogs. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I mean, sold, sold a couple of dogs to uh, the uh, Australian military as well. We're working on them right now. Ah, oh, fantastic! Yeah, well, I mean, look, you've you've really been there and done it all, and and it's important because there's you know, especially um, you know, in our careers, I mean, you've been out here, you've seen what we're doing, and we're we're expanding the business ourselves. So a lot of what you were saying before about people coming and going and the business expanding and things changing, you know, that sort of rang home for me a little bit because. Even though I don't own this company, I treat it like my own. It's the same thing with you with Tar Hill. You know, uh, the, the, the one thing that remains the constant is I'm here and, you know, lots of staff will, will come and go in their careers. Some people stay for a long time. Some people stay for a short time. And as I said, that, that advice that you were giving was very sage advice because it allows people to remain optimistic that things change and that's okay and you've just got to roll with it sometimes and, and uh, reinvent what you're doing and stay, I guess, stay modern. Yeah got to i mean uh, things are changing all the time and, you know i remember when i first got into the industry you know you feel like a young kind of upstart like you're you know and then uh you know like one day somebody will call you a dinosaur you've been around for a long time and like i don't really think i'm a dinosaur but yeah you know may, maybe some of the maybe there are some things that, uh, that i've held on to and some that i've held on to maybe too long but yeah i think uh, i think one of the things that i've been good at uh, my company's been good at is, um, you know, is being dynamic and, and making changes when those changes were smart changes to make. And, and also, like I also tell people too, like there's a lot of there's a lot of fads that go on in our industry, mm. and that people jump on immediately. And sometimes I let that stuff like shake out a little bit before I get too excited about it. And uh, and sometimes I don't do it at all. And uh, you know, I think uh, I think sometimes just because you're not changing with the current winds doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you're old school. Um, sometimes you might be uh, good school. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> there's an old saying, and I mean, you being a philosopher, you know, this might ring home for you. But there's an old saying that gray hair does not maketh the man wise. And uh, I don't care how long you've been in the industry; it's what you've done in with your time in the industry. You know, there's there's people that I've known that have been in the industry for forty years and they've done nothing with that time. There's other people that have been in in the industry for twenty, thirty, forty years and they've done amazing things in that time. You know, like they've they've expanded their knowledge, they've stayed open minded, they've remained flexible, they've looked into different things. So, you know, I think people calling us older guys dinosaurs is a funny and remarkable thing sometimes 
because they're when the shit go uh, hits the fan and it's not working for them, where the people they run to for answers to their problems. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes that's true. Sometimes people don't want to admit where they go for advice when they feel, uh, yeah, exactly. feel uh, stuck. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. All right, buddy. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is our hundredth episode, and um, you know we wanted to hear from great people. Thank you very much. Congratulations, by the way. Like I, when I work out, I um, I listen to I listen to you guys all the time, and uh, I get a little nostalgic for uh, for my visit in June. You know, we uh, we had a lot of laughs, had a really good time. So uh, sometimes when uh, when I'm working out and I'm listening to your episodes, because my workout's about an hour long, and I work out, and your your uh, your podcast is usually around an hour long. So I get to, I always get to usually get to finish it by the time by the time I get done. So been listening to a bunch of what you guys have been doing and uh, you're, you're doing a great job uh, putting out a lot of great information um, so congratulations man like you really you guys are killing it and um, I think uh, I think you got a lot of respect from a lot of people in the industry so congratulations on uh, on 100 oh mate thank you very much that means a hell of a lot coming from you and um, mate we're looking forward to you coming back into the country because you've been one of our inspirations uh, especially in in PSA you've you've been excessively helpful you've always thrown everything you can behind it you know like you helped Pat immensely in the early days when he was really struggling to try and get it up and going you've stood behind everything you know between you Sean and Janet we couldn't have done it without you guys and we really appreciate you accepting us into the family and doing everything you can to to help us kick PSA off in this country so Jerry you know you've you've inspired a lot of people around the world we really appreciate you Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was good to see you again, Glenn. Great to see you too, mate. Thank you so much. Take care. Joining us all the way over from Buffalo, New York for our 100th episode, we've got our great friend, Tyler Mudo, who's been on the show before and no doubt be joining us again in the future. Welcome, Tyler. It's great to be here. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you joining us and uh, being a part of this uh, 100th episode show. I'm excited to be a part of it. It's uh, You guys gave me a good question to think about. So, in relation to that question, I'm going to ask it to you on air, and I'm really keen to see what your answer is. So, what tool, technique, information, or realization has had the most impact in your career, and why? All right. So, I really did give a lot of thought to this. It was a hard question to answer because, of course, you know, it could be training-wise, it could just be business-wise, whatever, but I decided to stick with training because I think that's what most of our listeners are interested in. And I think for me, the biggest thing, and I, I can't really say it's like a single realization, but just over time, learning to be better and better at sort of seeing the world through the dog's eyes. Mm-hmm. And I want to clarify that a little bit, because I don't just mean like learning how dogs learn, right? Or like, you know, learning how dogs react to reinforcers and, and punishers, but like really how, you know, trying as best as I can to understand how a dog is interpreting the world around them mm-hmm. in sort of all facets. And, uh, the more that I sort of turn my focus to that, that's probably what's been the biggest, can't think of the right verb here. I want to say changer, but that's not a, that's not an actual word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the biggest thing that's sort of, I, I guess, driven change or innovation in what I do has been just a better and better picture of, what the dog is going through, you know, what, what their life is like and, and how they're interpreting everything from the world around them to, um, and, and probably most, especially, uh, our own behavior and actions. Mm-hmm. 
I guess that in relationship to your education portal, the name that you've given it, which is Consider the Dog. Yeah, correct. Exactly. And that was sort of where that name came out of. So if you look back over your career, the time that you kicked off and sort of really started it, can you see or can you identify when you had the aha moment when it really started to make sense for you? It was less of an aha moment and more of actually like a period of feeling kind of jaded, to be honest with you. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I originally got into dogs because of an interest in behavior and, and our relationships with dogs. I, I was never, I didn't get into dogs because I was interested in, you know, obedience training or competitive training or anything like that. Mm-hmm. However, early in my career, I did discover those things and become very interested and i put a lot of focus in, um, sort of how do we teach dogs to do things, right? Like what's the, what's the most expedient way if I need to get a dog to do X, what's the most expedient and reliable and like nicest way to do that ultimately. And that was, that was a great phase to kind of go through, you know, that was a great period of like exponential education of just animal learning theory and science. Right. Mm -hmm. But the problem was, you know, most of my career revolves around behavior problems and helping families, you know, sort of live better with their dogs. And I just was coming up against, you know, periodically, but more than I would like situations where we we do all this stuff sort of textbook, like properly from a you know behavioral science standpoint, you know what I mean? So we're looking at how behaviors are being reinforced, how they're being punished, yada, yada, yada. We're putting all the obedience training in place. We're doing all that. Yet in, you know, more cases than I was satisfied with, some of the dogs still were struggling, mm-hmm. you know, uh, behaviorally, emotionally, right? And so when when you sort of, when your focus is sort of like laser focused on you know, essentially the Skinner box, right. For, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. you're going to hit those limitations. And so I, I kind of had a period where I was just feeling really jaded. I was just feeling like, man, like, what am I, where am I not focusing? And I just sort of had to step back. And so, yeah, it, it's really less about, again, like how is the dog learning from rewards and punishers, but rather actually stepping away from that stuff and just uh, uh, sort of taking a bigger picture view Again, how is the dog just interpreting the world? How are they interpreting my actions? Here's a, a, a perfect example, right? Just a simple example that we see all the time to right. kind of give an idea of what I'm kind of getting at here. Mm-hmm. Let's look at a dog getting ready to go on a walk. And I've posted videos about this before. So some people may have heard this before, but you know, you're getting ready for a walk with a dog. And of course, we all like our dogs to sort of be relatively calm while we're putting a leash on them and you know, approach the door calmly and sit and wait and be polite and all that kind of stuff. And so we go through all the motions of, you know, rewarding what we like, you know, correcting or punishing what we don't like, you know, et cetera, to sort of shape the behavior Mm -hmm. of what we want. But then so many people still end up with that dog who's completely revved up and excited and this and that. And what we realize quite a bit, and, you know, many people who are listening have probably realized this as well, is that so many times we're looking at going out the door as sort of an obstacle, right? Like all those steps, the putting on the leash, the, you know, getting our jackets on, the, you know, getting the dog sitting, all that's sort of an obstacle. We really just want to get out there, get on the walk. We've got our 20 minutes, you know, that we can walk before we have to go to work. 
Um, and that's really the event and everything else is just sort of like this preparation for the event that we're just trying to get through. But by feeling that way about the process, what we don't realize is we are actually behaving in a way where we are impatient about those preparations, right? We are sort of rushing through getting the leash on, doing the sit. All of that is something we're just trying to get through because we are also anxious about getting on the walk. And it's those subtleties of our behavior that sort of come out of that, that the dog interprets. Mm. How are we supposed to teach a dog to be calm and patient about preparing for the walk when we ourselves just sort of want to get that stuff over with so that we can walk the dog because in our mind, the dog needs to walk X number of you know blocks or whatever for it to be a proper walk. And so again, we don't even notice the little subtle cues or just the way maybe our breathing is changing or our rate of action is changing. And then we wonder why the dog is having a hard time being settled and we become frustrated, which often makes us even behave that way even more. Right. Mm. So th- that's just like a simple example of sort of what I'm getting at by just taking a step back and saying, well, how is the dog interpreting everything that's happening here? Mm. You know? Yeah. I guess um, those little nuances really create Zen moments in your training career, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I actually, um, one of the videos I did on this topic, I, I talk about it as being, that's really what it, what it means when we talk about how you have to be in the moment with your dog, mm. right? We're not in the moment when we're doing that. We're, we're putting the leash on the dog, but our mind is actually already on the walk, right? So we're not fully present in just that process. And, you know, recognizing that each stage along the way has just as much value as every other, no different than, you know, yeah, you might be, you know, making your bed, but you really are just trying to get out the door to get to work instead of just being present in the act of making your bed and doing it properly. In fact, for anybody with like a martial arts background, I know for me, I did Kung Fu most of my life. And that was a huge part of Kung Fu practice is sort of like every task you do in life becomes Kung Fu. It becomes part of what you're doing because Mm. the idea is if you can't do that stuff with a fully present mind, how are you going to, in the middle of a fight, you know, put a block up with a fully present mind or throw every jab with a fully present mind, right? If this block is just an obstacle to get to that jab, then that's not going to be really like a, a, a proper block, right? Or, or, you know, whatever the technique is that you're doing. But it's it's that way with our dogs all the time, basically, is what I'm getting at. So, you, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. It, you know, it is a Zen thing. It is very much a, mm. um, a uh, mindfulness sort of thing. It's interesting, yeah. the uh, the Kung Fu example that you used, I remember, and I've frequently quoted it to most of the students that I work with these days, about the importance of learning the Silam Tao, which was the first kata or form that you get taught in Kung Fu or Wing Chun. Did you learn the Silam Tao when you were doing it? I did Wing Chun for just a very small period, so like a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, I was mostly doing more of Shaolin. a long style Kung Fu. So I didn't do the Wing Chun long enough to remember the names of things. Mm. But uh, yeah, I did start learning that first form. Yeah, And boy, it's frustrating when you first start it because it is so much more than just going through the motions physically. Mm. And it's amazing what, you know, what a teacher can pick up on. You think you're doing it perfect, but all they got to do is push on you in the right way and you realize that you're not. You're weak in the, in the position. Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the Zen moments that I had in there is when – I thought I was doing it so well for many years and then um, I had an instructor that came up to me and he basically said, without being insulting, but he said it in a very masterful way that my form was terrible 
And he primarily, the lesson that he was trying to get through to me was when you learn these things, don't try and skip the basics, learn them very well, like set up very strong foundations because that's going to have a very profound impact later on in your career. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Well, that's very traditional for Kung Fu. You know, my school was very much the same way. You're, you know, you'll be four or five years in and you're still in the, the, you know, beginner class, Mm. you know, no, no like belt ranking system in that way. And you're just, yeah, you're like working your horse stances for years. But there's Uh, nothing wrong with that, right? It's part of enjoying the journey. Absolutely. And to me, good dog training is no different. I mean, any, any advanced skill that you teach a dog is rooted in just a few very basic fundamental concepts that if you don't master those concepts, you're, you're going to struggle the whole way along. Mm. So mate, being part of the, uh, or a very strong part of the ISCP for many years, holding the, the president's role and having a very active role in the community there, no doubt you would see and speak to a lot of new time people there that have, well, you know, it might be their first conference or their second conference. I sort of had an observation there when I was speaking to newer people, how full of doubts they are. You know, they're doubting themselves and they're doubting their potential or their learning capability. What advice would you give to them? How would you satisfy them that it's all going to be okay in the end? I think the most soothing thing I could probably say is that those doubts are not going to go away Mm -hmm. and they probably shouldn't. If I wasn't still doubting what I was doing, I would I, I wouldn't be learning mm-hmm. anymore because I wouldn't have the drive to. What drives me, you know, people ask me how I read so many books, you know, because I'm I'm kind of known as being a nerd um, in a lot of ways. But what what drives me to you know kind of educate myself, and I think this is true for anybody I know. The, I mean, a lot of your guys' listeners are really driven to continue educating themselves, and a lot of that is because we all have this sort of underlying you know, I can be doing better, right? Like there, I, there's still things that I'm uncomfortable with. There's still gaps that I'm looking to fill. And that's really what drives us for self-improvement. So I think the key is actually just to embrace it. It's just to say, this is part of it, mm-hmm. right? This is part of growth and try to imagine what it would actually be like to not have that there. You know, like it would be cool. Like I remember, um, I was actually just talking to my wife about this. You know, I did, um, Ishinru karate when I was really young. And it was like a lot of our like westernized, you know, karate schools. Mm-hmm. You just you fly through the ranks, right? And I had a black belt by the time I was 10 years old. I had a black belt. And I continued with karate for maybe a year after that. And then I quit. Because I was too young to know that just because I had a black belt didn't like there was still so much to learn, but it was like, you had to kind of go deep. Like I had learned all the katas. Like there was no, what's the next kata? Oh wait, there is none. Mm-hmm. Right. But I was too young to have a full grasp of like, yeah, but you haven't perfected the ones like, like, like no 10 year old should have a black belt, you know, first of all, but that's another conversation. Um, <laughs> but you know, it was at, like my 10 year old mind was like, okay, cool. So like, I guess that's it then. Right. And then this thing that I actually loved doing karate, like I was into it. I started when I was five or six years old. So this thing that I loved doing, all of a sudden I was just like, I had no interest in anymore because I felt like I was done. Mm. Yeah, that's you an know? interesting concept, buddy. I mean, I've been doing BJJ now for a year and I'm still a mid-ranked white belt. And, um, you know, the professor at our organization, he always says, you know, you only rank 
through blood, sweat, and tears, not just because you turn up. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so to me, that's like, if I didn't doubt myself, if I didn't still have that sort of inner drive to get better, I, I don't think I would enjoy working with dogs anymore. Mm. I think it would become boring. I'd have to move on to something else. Yeah, I think that's sage advice because there are a lot of people that I spoke to this year who were going through a little bit of inner turmoil. And I value that advice because I believe that, you know, in the, I think in the first interview we did with you, your recommendation was start reading some books and upskill your knowledge. I think that itself, when we talk about sage advice, I think that certainly is. Yeah. All right. Any other advice that you could give new time people or people who are branching off into a career or looking into getting more involved in dog training? Ah, uh, man, just never stop listening, you know, never stop listening to to the dogs, to the people that are around you, to everything. Just never stop listening, I guess. That's kind of the big thing, you know. Yep. Cool, buddy. Thank you very much for being a part of our 100th episode. Really appreciate your time. And as I said before, we're um, looking forward to speaking to you more on a, a different topic. I would love that, man. It'd be great. Thank you so much, Tyler. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. We're as excited as ever for our 100th episode to have one of the greats on our show. We've had him on before, and it's always a pleasure and an honor to have him. Would you please welcome Mr. Pat Nolan? How are you, Pat? Uh, Good, thank you. And uh, it's my pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you for asking. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, mate. Um, You're uh, one of the people that we often refer to as the successors or one of the people, I should say, that has created a foundation for a lot of scent work that goes on today. Wow. Well, it's wow for us because because of what you did and the early work that you uh, set about, you've changed the dynamic on how people teach their dogs how to look for scent or how they do their training practices for the better. Well, golly, that's special. Thank you. Thank you, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Pat, I've got a question for you. For our episode, for our 100th episode, we've invited uh, a few guests from around the the traps to answer a question for us, and I've sent you this one online, so hopefully you've had a little bit of time to digest it and think about it. So I'm going to ask you again, what tool, technique, information, or realization has had the most impact on your career, and why? Well, I would first want to say that I have learned from trainers and friends. I've studied, I've always been a student of training, read everything I could and followed trainers in early days. We didn't have the internet, of course, but I went to seminars, talked to people, trained with folks. I learned a tremendous amount from retriever trainers, Rick and Patty Roberts, Hugh Arthur, Wayne Curtis, Bill Eckett. Uh, In the bike dog world, Ivan Balabanov, Bart, Mike Suttle, and detection. Learned a lot from Randy Harris, good friend and good dog man. Mm. But if I had to point, so I learned a lot from people, from trainers and friends. I learned a tremendous amount from the dogs. In the beginning, I used to tell the dogs a lot. And later, I learned to ask them more questions. And I, I learned a lot from what the dogs are telling me in training. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I had to point to two events that had the greatest impact, I would say that one was I had read a book by Dr. Michael W. Fox, and I can't, I can't find it. I, don't, I haven't found it since, 
but he was mentioning an experience, an experiment he had done with puppies. And I read this book in the 70s, and he had used anise oil with puppies. Mm -hmm. And he exposed puppies before 18 or 19 days, exposed them to anise oil. And puppies' natural reaction to this strong odor is to to retract and to, to pull away from it. And then he took puppies before that age and wiped the anise oil on the mother's breast or on her chest. And so when they were nursing, they smelled the anise oil. Mm -hmm. And when those puppies were exposed to anise oil before 19 days, they rooted towards the anise oil instead of retracting and pulling away from it. So in this very early period before the general supposition is that they're thinking logical prefrontal section of the brain's not turned on at that point. Mm. So in that very early stage, these puppies had learned an odor and they had associated it with their mother. And so they were using like a nursing reflex when they encountered this odor that they would naturally pull away from. Mm -hmm. And so when I read that, I realized that if they could learn in association with anise, that there was no reason they couldn't learn the association with any other odor and that there was no reason to wait to do odor imprinting until the dogs were adult. So I started experimenting. I happened to have a litter of German shepherd puppies at that time that were three weeks old. Mm -hmm. And I started imprinting an odor, a target odor for them. And they learned it. And just a short period of time, they would move towards this target odor. At the time, I used dried raspberry leaf. Didn't have permits to keep any hazardous materials. And I knew that I don't need them to find dried raspberry leaves, but I also knew that they wouldn't encounter it in my house unless I put it out. So I had an odor that I could use. And since that time, I had played with early imprinting of target odors. So I did that the first time I did it in, in the late 70s, 78 or 79. And that opened my eyes to what you could do with puppies. Wow. So that little short little clip quip in a book from Dr. Michael W. Fox. Do you happen to remember at all the title of the book? It may be Understanding Your Dog. I was looking through that earlier. That was one of the earlier books that he had published. It was published in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And I will continue to search. I haven't been, been able to find that reference again. Uh, I think it was from the book that, he, I mean, I know it was from Dr. Michael W. Fox. Mm -hmm. I think it was from a book and not published research, not peer-reviewed published research, but from a, a popular book. Okay. And I, ha I haven't been able to find it, but I will continue to look for it. I'm almost. Uh, I'd love to add it to you. I'm almost certain that uh, Stephen Lindsay has cited Fox a few times in his manuals, a handbook of applied dog training and behavior. I'll mm -hmm. have to, I'll have to look into that. I'm, I'm sure that I've, when I've read there, I'm, I'm sure that I've seen the name Fox appear and, uh, and some of his study work. If it wasn't Lindsay, it was certainly another book that I've, I've read mm -hmm. that relate that referred to him in early puppy development. Yeah. And that's what he was, he was talking about the, critical or sensitive periods in the development of a puppy. Mm. And that was a, a little bit of a research he did uh, working with that, you know, what could puppies learn in that early time? 
Well, that's truly pragmatic, Pat, because, you know, like to actually deep dive into that a little bit further, like first of all, to find the information and then to realize early on that you could relate it to other scent work. Well, there's a popular book out now that, and I can't, I'm sorry, I forget the title and I forget the author, but he's talking about the fact that there's two general ways to success and one is to be, to specialize very early and then another is to be a bit of a generalist Mm -hmm. and that in some pursuits like golf, specializing very early seems to be a path to uh, success, but that in many pursuits in life, the path of a generalist, some of the famous tennis players now didn't start playing tennis as children. They played all kinds of other games. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think some of the hockey players played a bunch of different things and then they settled into a pursuit later on and they could apply things from other sports to their, and Wayne Gretzky maybe one, and I'm sorry, I don't have a reference for this, any of this, Glenn, I, I apologize. That's um, okay. But uh, and maybe I can find it and you could add it in the show notes, but to take information from other pursuits and apply them to our projects is sometimes a, uh, a way to make a difference. I mean, you know, to, not to make a difference necessarily, but to a new path. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It, it does, yes. So, Pat, in generalizing, if there was some advice that you could give to new budding trainers, because there's a lot of trainers that ask us questions on the show and, and ask a lot of trainers around the world, you know, they're kind of, I guess what I'm saying is they, they're kind of looking at what would you suggest to them early in their career? Well, for many years, I studied successful trainers and mimicked, not mimicked, but um, did my best to reproduce what I saw they were doing that was working. And at some point in time, I began to try to innovate some, but until I really understood what was working for other people, I didn't try to innovate. I tried to imitate. Mm -hmm. And so I would learn the techniques that you can from successful people mm-hmm. and, and seek principles that support the sound techniques. If you don't understand principles, you'll be a slave to technique. But when you understand the principles, the foundational truths that support a pursuit, then, then you're free to try different techniques. Yeah, no, but, I think that's sage advice indeed. So for you right now in your career, if you could turn back time, let's say you could go back 30, 40 years in your career, would you do anything different or are you happy with the pathway that led you to where you are today? Oh, I'm very happy with the path I took and the way life's turned out and the way my career's turned out. I wish I had some of my early dogs over to train them again a new way. Mm -hmm. I do wish that because I'm a better trainer today than I was last Wednesday. And I hope I'm not as good. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> and so I listen, I would love to have some of those wonderful dogs that I trained and, and do over with, uh, with the better approaches. That yeah, it'd I be use great now. to see some of our old pals again, wouldn't it? Yes. Mm. If I could, if I could share one more thing that I would, uh, of course. I know you asked for one thing, but I have more than one thing. No, no, no. Um, I'm, I'm, please share it with us. As again, as, as I said, when I was first getting started training, I was an imitator and I learned techniques that worked and I didn't try to innovate. 
Um, I knew when I was looking into field sports, I knew the field trainers knew things that I didn't. Mm -hmm. Bird placement and how to teach dogs to work at great distances and the collar conditioning. And they were wonderful people and shared with me and uh, taught me. And, you know, we we competed on the weekends and they we, they helped me the rest of the time. But but I wanted to have a hawk when I was a kid. And I would tell the story about the hawk. And I know I've told it before, maybe. But when uh, as an adult, I never did get a hawk as a child. But as an adult, I had a, a bird get caught in my bird pen. We keep birds for training retrievers. And we tried to the bird got hurt in the pen and I took him to rehabilitator, tried to get him healed up and ended up becoming friends with the rehabilitator. And he became my sponsor, sponsored me in Falconry Sport. And in the United States, you have to have a sponsor. You do an apprenticeship. You have to pass a test. It's pretty tightly regulated now. And I started flying Hawks and I loved it. I had a lot of fun and I was a professional retriever trainer and I was fairly successful. I had people sent me dogs to train and I won enough that my truck was full. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was, as a professional trainer, I was always striving to do more and get more with the dogs that I was training. And I wanted to, I wanted to win more because some, it was, I guess, pride and arrogance, but some, it was as a proof mark of my, skill as a trainer. You know? Absolutely. And, and that's how I made a living. So I needed to be good at what I was doing. But at the time I had a group of young retrievers that didn't at the time of the story that I'm trying to relate and not, and doing a poor job of, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's good. I had a group of young retrievers that some of them really didn't like to train. And I was complaining to myself, you know, I got to get better dogs so I can win more and you can't they won't send you good dogs until you're winning and i can't win with dogs that don't want to train yada yada sort of a pity party mm -hmm. um not a not full on and but just you know complaining to myself and i was flying my third or fourth hawk and this was a wild trapped hawk and typically it took me six to eight weeks of training before i would turn the hawk loose mm -hmm. But I had been training this particular hawk for two weeks, and I knew I could fly the bird free. I could just tell the things were working right and everything was going well. And I took it out, and I tossed him up in the tree, and he flew up in the tree. And I called him, and he came down. Tossed him, he flew up in the tree, and I called him, he came down a couple times. And then I was walking back to the house, you know, to put the bird away in his, his house, which is called a muse. M-E-W-S, Muse, it's the hawk house there. Right. And as I was walking back, I was feeling all proud and excited. I had trapped a wild animal. I had trained him for two weeks, and he would come when I called him off-leash. Mm -hmm. And I was really feeling good about it. And the closer I got to the house to putting him away, I started comparing him to the dogs I had in training. The worse I felt, I thought, I've got pups in training for two months that don't willingly come when I call them. Some of them only came because I could make them come uh, with pressure or whatnot, you know, mm -hmm. and or with a rope, maybe not two months. But at any rate, I had taught a wild animal to want to work to, with me. But yet 
somehow I had taught some of these young dogs not to enjoy working with me. And it, it really, I felt bad about that. And I realized that I needed to not just continue to get better at the things I was doing. Again, I was successful, but I, I realized I, I didn't, couldn't just continue to get better at the things I was doing. I realized I needed to learn some new things. That's a, that's then, a great epiphany. Honestly, that's a great epiphany. And may I ask, Pat, what did you change? The first thing I realized, I, you know, and I, I studied a lot. I thought about it. What was I doing different with the bird? What, how did I structure training? What was the, my approach with the bird? What were the basic differences? And one basic difference is you can't really use correction with a bird. Mm-hmm. Now, we can use pressure with the dog. I still use very little correction. Most of the pressure I put on the dog is to do the right thing, do mm-hmm. the desired behavior. So, but, but you can use correction with a dog, but we shouldn't rely on it just because we can use pressure. Yep. That's another pill. So the first thing was, it was somewhat freeing when I realized I, I can't make the hawk do anything and I can't make the dog do anything. The dog's really free to act when he's off leash. Everything I do with the dog, I want to do off leash at a great distance, very near distraction. Now, if I want reliable performance off leash at great distance, near distraction, I can't make him do anything. Mm -hmm. He has to choose to do what I want. So it was freeing for me emotionally to realize I don't have to make him do anything. You do whatever you want. I just control the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> and that was really freeing for me. And second was I began to train and drive. Mm-hmm. I realized there were times I was training my dog when I'm working him and he's looking outside of the training situation. I wonder what's going on over there. Or I wish I could do this. And he's looking outside of the training for what he wants. But I would never fly the hawk when he was looking outside of the training for what he wanted or what if he didn't want something. So I trained that hawk in drive. I made sure he was in a drive state where he really wanted something. And I made sure that he knew I had what he wanted. What a wonderful realization. And when I trained the dog in drive, the same deal. If I'm trying to teach him something and he's looking outside, I'm wasting my time in his. Mm. But when I put him in a drive state where he really wants something and I show him that I have it, I show him that I want him to have it and let me show you how to get it. Yep. I, it was my training accelerated, my performances improved and I can get more with, with less. So that's what I learned from the Hawk. Well, Pat, that is an absolute gem. I really appreciate you sharing that with us and the audience. As always, it's been an honor and a privilege to have some of your time and to share some of your wisdom. I want to thank you and, of course, your lovely wife, Connie, as well, for the work both of you produce and generously share with the community. Thank you, as always, because people are benefiting from your early work and what you've done, even up until today. Thank you very much, Pat Nolan. I really appreciate you joining us on our 100th episode show. Yeah, it's a great pleasure, Glenn. Uh Look forward to when we can get together again. I'll pass on your well wishes and say howdy to 
to Pat for me. And uh, hope to see you again on this continent or on yours. Thank you very much, Stay. Take care. Thank you, Pat. Okay, and sitting here with us to answer her version of our 100th episode question is Katrina Hartwell. Hi, Katrina. Hello. So, what tool, technique, information, or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? I think as a technique, manipulating the environment, Mm. being able to set a dog up, allow him to understand his space there and understand where he can seek his advantage there, and be able to mark and then reward that behavior. Okay. So, for instance, if I had a young dog, I'd put him in an environment where there is nothing else for him except me, Mm -hmm. and I'd walk away and wait until the moment that he thinks that his, well, his whole world's moved, he's lost his social advantage, and when he starts to follow me, mark that in time with a recall. Mm-hmm. and keep going and follow that process. I also teach directions with livestock, teaching dogs to put pressure on, take pressure off, so they understand not just how to have pressure applied to them but how to apply pressure themselves and how to relieve it. Mm-hmm. Mark directions using the same. So how do you do that? Oh, To teach a dog to cast. Yeah, like using the same principles that you just said then. Yeah, so I'll wait till I'll set a dog up in a yard with with sheep or wieners mm-hmm. and I'll wait until he he'll see his advantage. He won't he's got nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with the environment. He'll see his advantage to to chase a stock in one direction. Mm-hmm. And just I'll, I'll watch the dog and mark the moment in time that he's anticipating going in that direction. Yep. Give it a name. And then let him find his advantage in the work. Right. So like, a, uh, I guess, I hate exclusionary language, but it'd be kind of, you'd say that's capturing at that point, right? Yeah. So he's going to do it anyway and you're just attaching a word to it. That's right. And letting him be free with the behavior. Mm-hmm. It's m- much like shaping, but on a, it, well, it is shaping. Yeah, it's a form of it. Yeah, for sure. So I set up the environment with all different types of environments to it, Give the find so the dog can find his advantage in doing what aspect I'm trying to teach him, mm-hmm. and then let the dog do without pressure. I can layer in pressure later, mm-hmm. but the pressure's not mechanical. Yeah, yeah. So when did you have this epiphany? When did it come across you? I think I've always done it, but when I watched, I watched some work of some really specialised cow dog people, mm-hmm. and I kind of understood it better. And I understand it better and better as I go. Where the dog can find his natural advantage without any influence from us, we can mark those behaviours and and that will be the most rewarding thing for the dog. I mean, we can layer in rewards. Yeah. But that's what the dog wants the most in that moment. Yeah, whatever he's doing is his primary reinforcer. That's whatever right. he's just doing by himself, in and of himself, is what he wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we can set it up so the dog finds that reward. Mm-hmm. And for me, I can, I can have a whole heap of dogs follow me to hell and back because they don't think there's a reward in staying anywhere I'm not. Yeah, yeah. And they don't know why. They couldn't tell you why. They just think when I move, they have to move. Mm-hmm. And so. with the with the puppies, do you do that? individually or you do it as a group yeah as some dogs are really dogs that i see that are really quite attached to their litter mates i'll take them out and do those exercises by himself and i might drive them 
10 k's away and mm-hmm. put them down and do that and run through that exercise with them. It doesn't look flashy or special to start with, but I guarantee you'll get a dog that you never have to recall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which for most people is perfect, right? A dog like that, that dog just follows them around. Yeah, he'll, it brings a whole new life to least for pets, for loose leash walking. You can, you'll have a dog who'll naturally desire to follow you and follow you fairly close. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just a matter of throwing a lead and collar on them and un- understand the principles of the pressure from that. And you've mm. already set up those good behaviours early on. Yeah. I feel like that idea of manipulating the environment gets overlooked by people who then influence the training. So you're using a lot of food-based training, right, which is very popular and it's what most people are doing. And it works. Yeah, it totally works. And and I'm guilty of doing more of that than anything else. But especially when you are free shaping or capturing, as we would call it then, like setting things up to go the way you want so that you can get the outcome that you want and that outcome be naturally reinforcing for the dog has a, a special power to it for sure. Yeah. And whether it's things like jumping up or or jumping down or things, you know, you can teach – Lots and lots of commands in that really calm. Mm-hmm. Well, and the it's not just that it's really calm; it's that the dog's in a different state of mind. They're not looking to us for the reward; they're looking to the environment for the reward. Mm-hmm. They're looking to themselves for the reward. Yeah, relates to something I used to do a lot with my own dogs before I was really into dog training. I, I talked about just having a commentary for my dog's life. So when he was doing something, <laughs> I would just like I'd just be the commentator. He's going outside, I'd say go outside. And he is sitting, I'd say the dog is sitting, right? Like like literally like you're the, the narrator to the dog's life. But So you were basically Richard Dreyfus in standby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But then it, the exactly as you say, you're attaching a command to the action the dog finds reinforcing anyway, and the action is what you want from the dog. So capturing like that. Yeah. And understanding what comes next in the behavior spill for that individual. Mm-hmm. If they do that, what's the next thing for them? What's the natural progression for that dog in this environment or for what would I expect for a dog in that environment? Mm -hmm. Because if you can pair the command in that very early stage of the behaviour, I've found you can make the biggest difference. It sticks the best. Yeah, right. Okay. That's interesting. The dog goes, Mm. oh, I was just about to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Predictive training. Mm. But you've got to be able to understand what that animal would do in that situation. Yeah. Be able to read their body language a bit. That's right. That's I think that's the crux to that is actually being able to read the dog mm. and and know, oh you're about to do this. I'll say the word. Yeah, and not say it in a way that's it's not a command. Not a command. It's just a and just an attachment. It's just a pairing. Yep. Mm. And then lay the pressure, lay the command, and it all makes sense to the dog. Mm-hmm. That for me is probably the. It's not a tool, but that's probably the biggest technique, technique that that I use. I I've got dogs that are twelve months old and I've never worn a collar, but they can follow me to the ends of hell and they know how to sit and they know how to do any of the commands they need to. They just don't need to wear a collar or a lead. If you put a lead and collar on them, they buck from the pressure. Yeah. That's interesting. Hmm. I like it. Adding a question on top of that question. For a lot of people who are starting off their careers what advice would you give to them? Like somebody who's been in, in training as long as you have, like you've been involved in breeding and training now for, you know, give or take 30 years, as you, as we've said in your interview, what advice would you give to people now that you've had time to think on your career? People who are starting off. Don't be frightened to start at the bottom. Mm. And if doors close, knock on them. And then knock on them really hard <laughs> and find your advantage. I am. Um, 
worked in the security industry in Brisbane 18 years ago and I was refused lots of jobs just because I was a girl and I guess fair enough at the time but I just kept knocking and kept asking and eventually I got a job. Yep. And be prepared to do the shitty jobs when you start. Yeah. Don't think you're going to start at the top on big money training wonderful pet dogs or working in working dogs. You've got to earn your stripes first. And I guess the most important part is never stop opening your mind. That's a good answer and I like that. I really respect that. I was listening to an interview that Lady Gaga was doing a while ago and she was talking about when she was, she said, you know, like everyone talks about how I've made it and how I'm successful. And she said, well, there was a long time when I was walking up and down the street with a keyboard under my arm, knocking on doors, doing gigs and then people going to me, oh, your nose is too big or, you know, you're too this or too that. And she said, plenty of insults, lots of doors closed on me. And she said, but there was this one time where suddenly someone took interest and said, hmm, maybe you've got something, gave me an opportunity. And I think that, you know, like you've got to take some rejection because there's a lot of people out there who are very sensitive to that. And the immediate time that they get someone say no to them, they think, oh, that's it. There's no more opportunities. But there's plenty of other doors to knock on. Yeah, there's plenty of opportunities if you make them. And and a lot of the time you've got to make your own opportunities. Yeah, damn straight. Like if you turn, if someone was to turn up at every trial that happened in Sydney for every single working dog club and say, I'll mow the lawn, I'll mark the field, I'll pick up the dog shit, for the, I'll be the dog shit picker upper Yeah. Just can I watch? Yeah. I bet you they wouldn't get turned away too often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true that. Okay. All right. So, Katrina, really want to thank you for being uh, part of our 100th episode show. It's great to have you on board. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and expertise. And uh, it's going to be very helpful to people who are listening. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being, letting me be part of this dog training family that we're all part of now. Oh, we're better off for having you in it. Trust me. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Katrina. See ya. Joining us all the way from Chicago for our 100th episode, we've got the ever-present Chad Mackin. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us, buddy. It's a real honour and privilege as always. It was so good to catch up with you at the ISCP as well. Uh, it's not enough time, man. Not enough time. There's so many people you want to spend time with. And it's weird because the people that I, that I am the closest to, the people that mean the most to me, often are the ones that I end up spending the least time with at conference. I know, right? Because I kind of relate it to being like a wedding where you go to a wedding where there's relatives and friends that you haven't seen for ages. And it's like you've got five minutes to get everything in when it's like musical chairs almost. You're running around the room uh, trying to catch up with people and plus meeting new people at the same time. It's such a great networking opportunity, but it makes it difficult to catch up with and have long conversations with uh, old time friends. But hey, we've got social media. I mean, it's not like we can shake each other's hands or give each other a hug or anything like that, but we can still chat and catch up, right? No, it's awesome. And 100 episodes, congratulations, man. That's great. Thank you, buddy. Guys, it's good content. You guys put it, do do a good job. Well, thanks. You and Jay were one of our early inspirations. So, you know, thank you for everything you guys did as well. Oh, man, it was a great ride. You know, we got to do the conference podcast and that was cool. And uh, and I want to, real quick, I want to thank you publicly for the kind words you and Pat said about me on the uh, wrap-up, the conference wrap-up. That was very nice to hear. Thank you very much for uh, the support. It, it, it meant a lot to me. You guys said that the reason that you finally supported ISP was the, the years that I had been supporting them. And you knew my character was such that I would not have supported them if they weren't solid. That is, that's the, I mean, that's the greatest compliment you could give to my character. That really meant a lot to me, and I hadn't realized that that 
had such repercussions. From what I know of you and from what I've learned about you through your actions and other people is that you're a very honest guy and you speak from the heart and uh, you don't hold back when you've got something of relevance to say, which I think is important in this industry and not only that, but as a human being as well. I try, man, but it meant a lot to me. So thank you very much. It, oh, was, it was very touching. Pleasure, mate. I mean, it's your actions that gain that support from other people. So thank you for everything you've done too, mate, because you really, you know, you've been one of the strong bastions of this entire industry for a very long time. I mean, you've been part of the glue that binds it together. You know, I find it it's an important job and a task. And when other people are mainly focusing just solely on their own career, there's some of us who are also, you know, doing work in the background to make sure that there is a lot that can be benefited from it. So nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's it's very important that people do focus on their career and, and you know, build a strong a reliable career and what they're doing, or well, not reliable, What that's not the word I'm looking for. I think integral would be a better choice of words, but we still need people like you and, you know, other people out there that are making sure that they are donating their time generously to keep things afloat. Otherwise, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a, so much activity out there in other strong groups. If we don't form our own strong groups and alliances ourselves, we'll get lost in the wilderness. No, I think that's very important. It's a good good way to look at it mm. I mean, I've, I've always believed that like one of the things that's been a frustration for me throughout my whole career or early career was was the lack of camaraderie within the industry people look at other trainers as not colleagues but competitors and i think that hurts all of us everybody's got good ideas everybody's got bad ideas and if, if you're not talking you don't get to find out what ideas of yours are bad and what ideas other people have are good and that keeps everybody like kind mm-hmm. of bunched up in a little like if you just look at the 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 growth in training uh since the advent of social media you can see that that there's a lot a lot more homogenization going on in Mm -hmm. a good way all trainers are the same but like maybe you thought you had maybe i thought i had a good i thought a pretty decent heel and then i saw you know what other trainers are doing. So I need really need to clean up my heels because they're kind of sloppy compared to what this guy over here is doing, you know, or maybe I see a trainer who's using a tool in a way I've never used it before. And I go, Oh wow, I can do that. That's kind of neat. And, but when everybody's isolated, you don't get any of that. It's just this sort of tunnel vision. What we've always done is what we're always going to do. And I think one of the best things that I've seen happen in the industry in the last, you know, 10 years or so is this growth of knowledge that's happening. And I really believe the trainer wars are calming down. You wouldn't know it to look at social media, unfortunately, but I think in the day to day workings of dog trainers, I think there's a lot less of that. I think there's a lot more respect and tolerance for people who do things differently because we're seeing like th- those people aren't the evil demon. I thought they were mm. doing some good stuff that I can steal from. As Pat pointed out, In that wrap-up episode, I think one of the important things that he did say was the real gem in things like the IACP conference is that people are actually getting together and meeting each other face-to-face and having that hands-on networking capability with each other where rather than sitting behind a keyboard and slinging out one-liners, we're actually getting to know each other. We're creating friendships and bonds and, and strengthening alliances. Yeah. No, it's amazing. It's awesome. It's really, it's been been a wonderful ride. IACP is so valuable, and I'm uh, so congratulations on your award and on becoming a director. Um, although I have to say, I wouldn't wish that job on my worst enemy. So, <laughs> I mean, I did my time, 
and I, I don't regret it. But to paraphrase something Dick Russell told me about buying a boat once, getting on the board of directors of ICP will make you happy at least two days. That you get on, that you get off. <laughs> yeah, I've served on boards before. I kind of know what I got into, so I didn't sort of stagger into it unknowingly. No, it's, it's an important job, and God bless you for doing it. It's oftentimes thankless, but I respect for almost everybody who's done that job. Everybody who's done that job with IACP in mind, I have respect for. There's been a few people who've done it for selfish, personal reasons, and I got no respect for that. But if you do it to serve the organization, I have no doubt you will, because that's the kind of guy you are. I think you're going to make the industry or the, the organization much stronger, and they couldn't ask for a better guy to jump on there. Thank but, you, mate. So. That means a lot. Thank you very much. Okay, so that kind of leads me into the the question that we've been asking everybody for this episode. It's a doozy, so here it is. What tool, technique, information, or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? You know, it's funny because I've been thinking about this because you you gave me a heads up to the question like last week, I think it was, and I've been thinking about it since then. And everybody who knows me is going to think my answer is going to be socialization. Mm -hmm. And that would be a good answer. And then maybe some people might say, might say it's pressure release. Mm-hmm. Would also be a good answer. What I planned on saying was e collar, specifically e collar from Martin, because that was the first time I saw soft dog training. That was the first time I saw somebody train a dog and go, "I didn't know it could be like that." Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's amazing. And it, it really that was. It was a turning point for me because that's when I started this. The first time I saw somebody train a dog where I couldn't see the training happening, I just saw the dog get better. And I wanted that touch. I wanted that magic that I could pick pick up a leash and people who didn't know what I was doing would have no idea how I got the dog to do that thing. And just I just wanted that. It was so amazing. It was so, such a good partnership. But now, as I think about the question, my real answer has to be, And this is not, I mean, it sounds like a setup, I know, but my answer has to be IACP. Mm -hmm. Because all of those things I just listed, all of them either came about or were strongly influenced by my ties in IACP. Yep. Never met Dick Russell without IACP. I would have never met Martin without IACP. I would have never met Mark Goldberg without IACP. I wouldn't have met you guys without IACP. Like, everything good in my life, professionally, everything I'm proud of as a professional trainer started when I joined IACP. And so that's it. Like, like there's no single piece of information that I can say is most important. There's no single tool that I can say is most important. It is the community of like-minded trainers that I can use for support and inspiration and guidance and who can turn to me for support and guidance and help the sense that I belong to a group and the sense that this group welcomes me as part of them and the idea that we're all in this together, Mm. that like, I can't, there's nothing in my career that's of any value that wasn't affected by it. Take for dog training conversations. How'd that happen? Well, Jay came to one of my workshops. He's going, we got to get you on a podcast. He kind of twisted my arm to do it. How'd I meet Jay? I was teaching a workshop. Why was I teaching a workshop? Because one Saturday morning, I showed up in Dick Russell's field. Wow. You know, and and why did that happen? Because the lady who made my leashes back in Texas put a copy of the IACP Safe Hands Journal in my box of leashes and said, you should check this organization out. I don't think it's a bad answer at all. I think it's an awesome answer. It, it makes perfect sense to me. 
And I hadn't planned on saying that. I had been thinking about it for a week and, <laughs> and I had all these <laughs> potential answers. And, uh, but yeah, that's, no. that's, that's, yeah, buddy, I think that's a, I think that's, Again, you know, this, it's one of the pearls of wisdom that we're searching for when we ask this question, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the the reach and contact and the character of personalities that both Pat and I and, and many of us in Australia have met has been expanded exponentially because of the ISCP. We're really reaching out to so many more people, meeting people like yourself and Jay. And well, I met um, Josh here when he was doing a seminar, and it was really actually Josh Moran who introduced me to the ISCP myself. So I totally get it, mate. I really do. That makes perfect sense to me, that answer. I remember before I joined ISCP, I was one of those guys. I looked at all my other, all other trainers as competition. Mm-hmm. Right? I, and it was not uncommon for me. It's still not uncommon for me, but it doesn't mean as much. But back in the day, I would get people, I was their third or fourth dog trainer and nobody had helped them. And I would come up with something, I'd help them really fast. And I'd be, and at one point I, I thought about actually, you know, sending a letter to these other trainers saying, you know, this is what I did to solve this problem in case you see it again, just a heads up, which sounds really crappy now. I wouldn't do that to somebody now, but for different reasons. At the time I thought it was, I would be being helpful. You know, it wasn't like smug in my head, mm-hmm. but I didn't do it because I thought if they know that, then I won't get their cast offs anymore. So I made it just as a young, dumb, arrogant trainer. I made a decision to let dogs suffer at the hands of trainers who didn't know how to solve a problem because I thought they might show up in my door if I didn't help, if, if that trainer couldn't help them. Mm-hmm. I didn't frame it that way in my head. It was just business competition, right? You don't tell your competition your secrets, but as a veteran now, 26 years in the game, I look at, I think about that and I'm just, I'm quite frankly, I'm ashamed that I would ever consider my own, my own competitive edge over the welfare of dogs. It's such a terrible, crappy place to be coming from, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I joined ICP and found trainers who saw other trainers as colleagues and not competition. I think Quite. some of these things are impor- uh, very important epiphanies. Oh, huge, huge. And, you know, like, uh, you know, Jason Vasconi will tell you, you know, I, he opened up a, or he didn't open up. He got hired by a kennel like two miles from where I was working at the time. And they put out this big sign on the highway, you know, now featuring dog training with Jason Vasconi. I don't know who that guy was. So I picked up the phone. I called and I said, Hey man, let's go out and have some lunch. Mm-hmm. And that started a lifelong friendship, and that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for ICP. Mm. It was ICP that encouraged me to make that choice to to pick up the phone and call him. So, Chad, I've got another offshoot question to ask you because I think you know you're one of the important founding people to bounce this off. There's a lot of people that I've met at ICP who are very, very new and very young in the industry, and as such they're quite insecure about their place and how they go about doing things. As somebody who is a longstanding veteran in this career, what advice would you give them? How would you tell them to start their career off and improve what they're doing? I mean, the first thing is, I mean, everyone's going to say the same thing. I think is get your hands on dogs, right? Get yep. your hands on dogs. The more dogs you handle, the better you're going to be. But I think the other thing is there's a lot of people put a lot of barriers to entry in this industry 
that I don't think are necessary. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm concerned about the quality of the industry as a whole. I'm not saying everybody should train dogs, you know, whatever. But I see people all the time who have, they have good skills, very good skills with dogs who don't think they're good enough to be professionals. Like I hear a lot of trainers, especially veterans, talk about how these young kids have no respect for the past and they have no, they haven't paid their dues. They haven't worked hard enough to come up and they don't know enough to be taking money to train dogs and all of this stuff. And I sympathize with that a hundred percent. But let me tell you, I took started taking money for training dogs way underqualified. Absolutely underqualified. There's no, I had no business doing it when I started. None at all. Like I was everybody's worst nightmare when it comes to that. I'm the guy they, they, they're complaining about. But now 26 years later, I'm sitting in a position of respect and viewed by most as a, as a positive contributor to the industry. And because I worked hard mm -hmm. and I didn't quit. I didn't let somebody tell me I wasn't good enough. But I always had this hunger to get better. And that's the thing is, is, is I don't care how bad you are where you, when you start. Because at every point in my career, Glenn, every point in my career, like if you ask me right now, what's the minimum level of ability someone should have to be a professional dog trainer? I would say right where I am right now. And if you asked me a year ago, I would have said the same thing. So that means a year – me today doesn't think me a year ago was qualified. Yep. And that me a year ago didn't think me a year before that was qualified. So you're ne you'll never be good enough mm. if, if you care. If you care, if you want to do the best job you can, if it matters to you, the friction you cause in people's lives and dogs' lives, and if, if your mistakes upset you, you'll never be good enough. Mm. You'll never look at you and go, yep, that's it. I nailed it. It will always be a, that could be better. That could be better. But just because it can be better doesn't mean it's not, you're not ready. You know, if you know more than the person who's picked up the phone to call you, if you can help them, if you can make their life with their dog better, then you have something of value to offer. Mm -hmm. And if you have something of value to offer, you shouldn't be afraid to offer it. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, a, a, a client of mine who's going to be a dog trainer. She's amazing. She's got incredible natural talent and she's dedicated. She's got passion that I, you know. I get excited listening to her talk about it, you know, and uh, she's starting to take some side jobs, some jobs here and there for people she knows and stuff like that. And she's, she's struggling with this imposter syndrome idea that she feels like maybe I'm not good enough. And she told me today, you know, that I need a mentor. I said, you don't need a mentor. You're good. You know, I, I didn't have a mentor for a long time. And she's like, but I feel like I'm, you know, taking people's money when I'm not qualified. And I'm like, you're really good, mm. really good. We are our own worst critics. Like there's, there's, there's two problems with ego and dog training. One is the ego that says I'm awesome, badass, and I don't need to learn from anybody. That's a real problem. But the other problem that we never talk about is I don't, it is kind of an arrogant thing to say I'm not good enough in a weird way, right? I'm so good at being bad that I have nothing to offer. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's very few people who are serious about getting good with dogs who have nothing to offer somebody who doesn't know much about dogs. Like, you know, the gap between the gap between my knowledge and somebody who's been trained dogs a year is probably pretty vast. Right. Not to sound like 
arrogant or anything like that, but you know, you teach a course in this, like somebody who's just starting, there's a lot of things that they don't know. And then there's the experiential things like that. Just knowing that ability to look at that dog and know he's about to come with the leash at you. That's mm. something you get experience, right? But that gap is, it may be, may seem huge to somebody who comes in and wants to sit down or maybe somebody who's listening to your podcast or my podcast for years. And they're like, every time they turn it on, they get some piece of information that melts their brain a little bit. And they may think that, that you and Pat and Bart or me, and not to put myself in the same category as Bart by any stretch of the imagination, but you get what I'm saying. They, they, they may think the difference between where they are and where we are as collective veterans is so vast, but the difference between me and that person is nowhere near as vast between the difference between that person and the guy who went down to the shelter and adopted a dog last weekend for the first time. Mm hmm like they, th that veteran of one or two years is closer to me in knowledge than that dog owner is closest to them in knowledge. And that's what I don't think they realize. It's, it, and it's a, it's a good thing to always be looking at who knows more than you. Absolutely. I do it the same way. Like, and that's the other thing too, it's not a contest, I agree. right? You know, stuff about bite work that I don't know and I will never know. And. But you could know. I could know. It's not my passion. Right. But. I watch you work. Oh man. Like I, some of my fondest memories of my entire career were in your outbuilding out there. Like your facility, your little training room is like, it's like home to me. And I don't know how that happens so fast, but every time I see pictures of it, it makes my heart feel good. <laughs> it's just, it was just a really happy place for me. And, but you know, you know stuff about that, that I will never know. And that doesn't mean it's not a contest. It's not like, you know, this doesn't mean, anything about our uh about our respective abilities mm -hmm. there's always something you can learn from somebody and uh and i love seeing people do things that i can't do i love knowing about those things i look at my good friend tecla do look at her dog's obedience and she's just it makes me want to cry yeah i'm so far away from that and she makes it look so beautiful and so magical and uh I, I mean, I would, I would kill for that, but that's probably not true. Cause I don't, I mean, I could fly and spend a weekend with her every weekend if I wanted to, I don't. So maybe I don't want to that bad enough, but you, you have to see the, find those people who inspire you, but don't let them discourage you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I that's, so that's a good, that's a good point. That's a good point is I think sometimes intimidation is what happens in the minds of people when they see people that are craftsmen or craftswomen at, at, whatever they're doing, they they see how good they are and how versatile and how tactile they are when they're training dogs and they become a little, like I said, they become a little intimidated by it, which sometimes prevents them from asking the questions or having a go. And when I think people get offered those opportunities, they really, you know, they really should ask the question because sometimes, you know, like people have asked me questions before, asked Pat questions, asked you, Jay, you know, a myriad of other people. And I've been thinking to myself, that was a damn good question. I'm glad they asked that. And I think going off what you're saying, Chad, I believe that when people get those opportunities and they find out the answer, like the correct answer, something that makes sense to them, then go ahead and make good use of that time. Yeah. I mean, like, so I think about, like, you look at Jay. You look at Tecla, you look at Tyler, to name a few. These are people who I have a great deal of respect for and look up to as trainers, and every one of them will tell you that I am their mentor. To me, they've all become my mentors. Mm -hmm. 
and that's how it should be. Absolutely. Like, I love the fact that I have a, a large group of people who I inspire to do things that I can't do. Mm. I used to have a martial arts teacher who told me, your job as a student is to be better than me. You have an obligation to be better than me. Totally agree. And I see a lot of people who have looked to me for guidance on this, that, or the other, and they've gone on and done things that are just incredible. Mm. And and I can't claim ownership of this. Please understand, I'm not claiming ownership of any of their successes. Only thing I did was I gave them a piece of a puzzle, and they ran with it. They did other stuff that was really cool. Yeah, well said. And that's that's and that's exciting for me. But if I had if if I was insecure, I might feel threatened by that. Yeah, I don't. And you know, Mark Goldberg is a mentor of mine. He's a guy that's inspired a lot of what I do, and he's made me. You know, he's a very good friend, like one of the one of the best friends anyone could ever hope to have in the world. But he's not afraid to pick up the phone and go, "Hey, I'm having some trouble with this dog. What do you think?" Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen often, but he will tell you a story about a mountain while that I gave him a piece of advice on the, you know, save the training. And that's again, that's not me going, "Look how good I am." It's I had a little piece of information that he didn't have, and it helped him solve his problem. And that's the way it should be. So learn the advice to young trainers is learn, 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 always be learning, but don't let the fact that you don't know everything make you think you don't know anything. Yep. Sage advice, bud. So mate, we're going to leave it there. And I want to really thank you for your time and everything that you've done. And also you congratulated me before on, on our award. And I'd like to congratulate you on your award, your literary award from the ISCP. Thank you. We're Thank looking you. forward to reading the Chad Mackin memoirs soon. <laughs> I've got some stuff I'm working on. Good. I've got some stuff. I've, I've had, uh, you know, some, some very serious changes in my life in the past year. that have slowed down a lot of the projects I've been working on. And I got a lot of people who are waiting for me to get some things out. But uh, soon I will be back in full stride. And uh, it's all good. Like I said, it's been a lot of people everything is for the better. Yep. So it's, it's not like crisis. Don't, I don't everybody write me go, what's wrong, Chad? Are you okay? I'm, I'm good. I'm great. I'm, I'm happy. I'm looking to the forward, forward to the future with a lot of anticipation, excitement, but I got a few more obstacles. I got to kind of knock, knock out of the way before I can do that. But there's big stuff coming. I think, I think people are going to be uh, really happy with what, with people who are into my stuff will be happy with what comes out in the next year or so. Awesome, mate. Really happy to hear it. And thanks once more for joining us on our 100th episode. Thank you for including me. It's an honor, man. Congratulations. And you two, you two guys, man, you two are the best guys I know. And you're both awesome dog trainers too. So you got the best of both worlds. Thank you so much, mate. That means a lot. Really appreciate your kind words. Thanks again, Chad. Thank you, Glenn. So we're joined with Bill Church, who's been on the show briefly once before. We're due to do a full show with you at some stage, Bill. Pat and I have caught up with you a fair few times now. We've seen you at conference all the time and had a great time hanging out with you. But here we are nonetheless to do – this is episode 100 for our show, by the way. So we wanted to get some memorable people on that have impacted a lot of people and have been part of the industry leadership. So I'd like to welcome you to the show first and foremost. Thank you, buddy. And congratulations on 100 shows. That's quite remarkable. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And who would have thought we got here? When did you guys start? We started in November 2017, I think. Okay, that's, uh, I mean, two years. 
Yeah, it's coming up to our two-year anniversary as well and 100 shows on and what an impact it's made. And we've been honoured that so many people have been following us and taking part in the show and enjoying the content. So hopefully much more to come. And most uh, most importantly, I bet you, uh, Glenn, and Pat have learned a bunch during these uh, episodes. Is that true? Mate, you're right on the money there because that's been one of the most important things for me is the access and the portals to learning through what other people's experiences are. It's been invaluable mm-hmm. and it continues to be. I mean, it's like, um, I mean, it's it's reassuring to hear people that are in the same industry. Uh, we can borrow scars from them, but we could also uh, know that we're not alone in the challenges that we, we seek. But I think that it's important that we do these types of things to let our voices be heard and let our individual perceptions uh, get get our percepts out there so we can form a good brain trust where all of our percepts to come together to form concepts that we get a better understanding of what we're doing with this interspecies communication. Sage advice, Bill. I really think, again, you're right on the money with that because if we don't have that between us, then what have we got? And this is one of the things where I've spoken to people at conference and in other locations around the world who have been a little bit isolative in their access mm. to speaking with other trainers and networking. What you're saying about networking again, it's brilliant and I love it and I've quoted it on your, the show. Your network is your net worth. Exactly. I mean, they're words to live by, my friend, and I think that they're things that uh, younger trainers who are in this industry, they're like I said, they're words that we really need to think about in getting out there and starting mm. to learn what's not not only what's available, but what is being done, what's being changed, what new sciences are around in the industry at this time. So I'm going to lead into the question because I don't okay. want to monopolize this because this is really about your little section of this episode. So the question okay. that we're asking everybody is what tool, technique, information or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? Oh, geez. I mean, that's a big, big question. And I remember just speaking with you yesterday, Glenn, how I was telling you that I have epiphanies every day. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and you were you were saying, me too, man. And I think that that's a, a mark of a great trainer, somebody who is always looking to learn and, um, you know, always uh, just striving to to understand these dogs better. The tool, I mean, number one tool is the leash by far, but the e-collar has changed the relationship with the dogs, in my opinion, and and given us um, a unique opportunity to use technology to increase the efficiency of communication that we have with these animals. And uh, the understanding of the, the e-collar uh, when it first came out was a lot more void in training, and, and we're starting to, to understand that proper conditioning uh, to this collar can can literally change and save dogs' lives. Absolutely, and uh, you know, so I, I, you know, that's the tool. Technique. I mean, I'm kind of going through every single one because I can I can mention just about one in, in, in every every category here. I mean, the technique. Um, I really, I, I really had my mind blown by by taking the Keeler course by mm-hmm. Tony Anchetta and learning some old school techniques. And what it showed me was in the reading of the books, these books were published in the 50s. It kind of had a snarky attitude in the book and people I think mistook some of the information. But once you study the nuances of the training, I saw that there was nothing more, more gentle and fair uh, to that dog when you start, when you apply it correctly. And that's the key is it's correctly. Information that has changed my career has been knowing who my clients are. Mm-hmm 
knowing that I, I speak and, and uh, work with 85% women. Yeah, that's and made so, an incredible turnaround over time. It's, a, it's likewise here. I started off mainly working with male clients in dog training and it transitioned heavily into being top heavy on females, which is great. Yeah. I mean, but there's a whole different type of psychoactive or psycho psychoactive hot buttons that 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 are going to appeal to these women and and um and not only that but there's a lot of times we have to get them as a professional i i I find myself introducing a lot more logic kind of theory into the relationship where they're trying to think with the emotion and trying to be nurturers and and um you know and 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 appealing and reaching those women i mean not women but people in general and people skills Mm. And, and how to appeal to them and how to teach them not only about how this dog learns and how that's different from how we learn and why it's important to become the dog by proxy instead of anthropomorphizing that animal. Yeah. But it's also important to teach the tools that we're using to, to teach obedience. And so, you know, we're, I'm kind of re- recreating uh, a little me in them. You know, I'm trying to, to leave some uh, lifelong skills that they can use to enhance the relationship with their their dog yep. with without me being there and there's some tips and tricks that you can that you can use i mean charging enough money is one of them too you know and valuing yep. your services let me see information and realization i mean the realization is is that there's really no finish line here mm-hmm. you well, know not it, only it, with the but training but that's the exciting part isn't it i mean that there is no finish yeah. line and I think that most species, humans especially, but when there's a finish line in sight, it's when you start, you probably steal a coin from Sapolsky and that's where you start to get dopamine decrease is that there is, there's nothing to be rewarded by anymore. There's nothing to feel good about anymore. You've reached the end of your journey and that's where people sort of go, ah, well, you know, I know everything I need to know about that. There's no reason to feel passionate or excited about it anymore. That's right. You know, Olympians, they, they go through a bout of depression after they win a the gold medal because what now? You know, and, and I think it's important with your relationship with your dog to set up the little goals, but also set up those impossible goals, too, so you can continue to celebrate. But no, you know, that, you know, there's no finish line as far as the training is concerned. Like, um, you know, it's a lifelong process, a lifelong relationship. It's communication with with that dog. But what we also have to realize as professionals is that there's no finish line of what we can learn from these these uh, animals and the relationship and the dynamic of, of that and how we can apply that to other aspects of our lives. And, and I think that's why it's so cool and so important that we preach cooperation instead of competition and right. why we show up at these uh, IACP events and, and look each other in the eye and shake each other's hands so we can genuinely know each other and see that we're authentically passionate about these dogs and we're trading our lives as professionals to work with them and you know might as well might as well do all we can collectively for these these wonderful uh, creatures right 100 percent. and again sage advice because pat and i were only talking about this the other day the importance of having conference that when we spend time online getting involved in or saturated in topics that are a little sensitive and emotional sometimes there's a lot of byproduct of that that spills over into a lack of cooperation 
However, when you're face-to-face, there's an entirely different interpretation on what was discussed, and people can actually see what was meant on the other side of the story, and I think it clearly defines things a little clearer, and people feel better about having sat down and thought, okay, well, I didn't consider that from your point of view, and maybe you didn't from mine either, and now that we're actually sitting together, enjoying time, having a beer, having a chat, sitting next to each other at conference, we can see that we're fundamentally heading in the same direction or at least trying to head in the same direction and just working on those few little stigma points as well is that we can move together and work on this industry to improve what we're all collectively trying to protect. That's right. And until we see, or until I see the dog bite statistics go down that happen to children every year yeah. and the dogs being euthanized every year, Indeed. those are my two, my two watermarks. Yep. You know, once I see those start going down, I know that we're going to, we're making a difference in the industry, but until then we need to continue to work together uh, to improve the lives of our fellow humans and our fellow canines. Mm. So, mate, given that there is a lot of new people, and this was a question that I asked uh, Heather Beck earlier in an interview, is there's a lot of new people now at conference and around in the dog training industry who are a little nervous and timid to speak up or uh, at least even go out and meet people. Um, as, a, as somebody of experience who's been around and has uh, educated and mentored people, what advice would you give them? If you want to be impressed by or if you want to be impressed or impressive to people, be impressed by them. You know, ask questions, get to know people, be genuine, and, um, you know, and be honest. I mean, that, that's it. But also go to networking events, go to Toastmasters. If, if you have a problem with uh, interacting with people, there's tips and tricks that you can learn that are going to benefit not just your relationship with your colleagues, but are going to benefit your relationship with your clients as well. Who's that, Bill? Um, who, who are you saying? Who am I saying? Like, yeah. I'm just saying Toastmasters. Uh, there's a local Toastmasters group here in America. I don't right. know if they have those in Australia, but it's like an, a local networking group, business networking group, uh, where basically all you're going to be doing is just networking. You're going to, and when you network, you, you're just meeting people. Yeah. You know, you're not trying to sell anybody. You're just trying to get to know people, get to, get to meet them, find out where they are, how long they've been working with dogs, what got them into working with dogs. Um, you know, but there, there's a huge people element to the dog world. In fact, it's more people than dogs, right? you know, and yeah. it's more women than I anything, think in, Australia, I, in we, my opinion, you know, I think in Australia, we probably call that something like the local chamber of commerce or something like that, where you can go down and meet with other business owners and uh, network with yeah. them. Yeah, or network online. I mean, there's so many different, but there's nothing like getting in uh, front of somebody and shaking their hand. Yeah. And not only that, but I mean, there's a lot of psychic energy that's exchanged with physical touch as well. Mm. Yeah, you're a very spiritual person from um, my limited meetings with you, but you're, uh, you are you and your lovely wife are very much involved in spiritual connectivity with people, etc. Yes, absolutely. And with dogs as well. You mm. know, there's a physical world, but there's a metaphysical world as well that we're we're not really taught too much about and you know that's another passion that i have of mine is studying about the metaphysical world and and applying it every day and teaching people about it as well that's pretty cool well next time we uh, get you on the show to do your full interview we'll have to deep dive into that a little bit more absolutely man i can't wait dude And, and i gotta tell you it's just such a pleasure to know you and Pat, and I can't wait to someday come down there once I muster up the strength for a 15-hour flight. <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come down there, but 
I mean, what a pleasure it is to know you guys. I, I'm honored to uh, be your colleague and, and um, you know, keep it up. Keep up this great content that you guys are generating. And, um, you know, I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you very much, mate. And if it wasn't for conference, I wouldn't have actually got to meet you and learn a little bit more about you, which is the, the magic of those networking potentials is to meet other people that you normally wouldn't really know much about. So I got to meet you in person, got to learn more about you. And through that, I've been following you ever since. And I've been watching your show, Bow Wow Bill when you've been interviewing people online. And one thing I've really admired, mate, and that I've seen is that you you don't necessarily go for who's hot all the time, is that you'll uh, a lot of the times that you'll get people on the show who are industry underdogs as well, who haven't really Absolutely. made a name for themselves or had the ability to get out there. Like you're just happy talking to people and talking to people about their passions, which I think is is marvelous and uh, it gives people the potential to tell their story where it may never really have got told. Yeah. Well, thank you, buddy. And I think that we all have something to teach each other and we all have something to learn from each other. And all I do, man, is I just listen to this intuitive nudge that's in me. I'm like, I watch somebody and I'm like, I want to talk to them on, on, on my live stream on, on uh, Bow Wow Bill. And, and just like your show, dude, I have learned more from just talking to trainers and, you know, it, it's bettered myself and my career. And, you know, so that's another aspect that, that I didn't mention earlier, but these live streams that I do just talking to all my colleagues and, and I love this long form um, format, like where, where we could, we don't really have uh, any set goals. We just go uh, until we, we, we re- basically run out of stuff to talk about. And um, it's just so cool. Mm. where the conversation goes when you just let it flow organically, you know? Yeah, they. I think sometimes they're some of the best conversations when you're when you're just shooting the shit, basically, and you can, you know, find out where the conversation goes. I mean, there's so many little rabbit holes that you can get uh, tucked into that you were unaware that it needed to be discussed. I mean, they're some of the best conversations I've ever had with people. And again, you know, like not to keep dragging up the whole conference thing, but because it's very much the same when I get to sit down with a group of students at NDTF as well, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability shared. There's a lot of time together. And I really like that because, you know, when people let their guard down and they're not trying to show you the facade that they've been busy building, but you actually get to see the real person behind the smoke screen, that's some of the most exciting time for me as well is to see who a person really is. Because there's like there's plenty of people that like to tell me that they think they know me, but they don't know me really well because they've never taken the time to get to know me. But uh, yeah. and and likewise, likewise, you know, the shoes on the other foot there as well. That when uh, I've misjudged people, only to find out that they're far far deeper than what I ever thought they were. You know what? That happened to me at this conference with Ian Dunbar. Exactly. Who would have I mean, thought I, he would have been I, such I, a, a a deep wealth of knowledge? I just was so impressed by him, man. And I was, I, I was kind of floored on how impressed I was by him because I kind of wrote him off based on some of the previous prejudices that I have had based yep. on with the really positive. But after meeting him, I'm a huge fan, dude. Huge fan. Well, I'll be totally honest with you. I, on the first night I was there, he was sort of hovering around our area and because I knew who he was and the same thing, I had a built-up prejudice from other things I heard. I actively avoided him on the first night and I was ashamed of myself. I went back to my room and I thought, no, man, you that's thats you know thats a really obstinate and arrogant um, personality trait. You really owe it to yourself to 
give yourself a kick up the bum for that and go out there and greet the man and shake his hand and, and, you know, at least if he's not a gentleman, you should be. But the great thing that I found out was that he was a gentleman and he was, it was a lot of fun to be around. I really enjoyed meeting uh, Ian Dunbar and hanging out with him and listening to some of his points of view. And one of the salient points which he made in the interview he did with us and when he got up was that people cherry pick a lot of his information. They short cycle what he's saying to get to, um, you know, basically to um, fuel their um, agenda. Yeah, fuel their agenda. Exactly. They fuel their agenda. They get what they want out of it. And they say, there you go. Dunbar just confirmed what I was thinking all along. But as he said, you know, like confirmation bias. Yeah, that's right. They've, they've um, short cycled his conversation to get to what they wanted to get to and then dump the rest of it. So he never really got to explain anything in the thoroughness that it deserves. So I found that for me was a good awakening and I'm, I was happier with myself that I allowed that to happen. And it, it gave me a little bit of stress relief, to be honest. Well, I, I, I felt the same way, dude, mm. you know, and that's it. It's just, that's what we need to do is we need to drop uh, these prejudices and these beliefs yep. and, you know, and that's, what's cool about meeting these people, man, is that you meet them and you're like, Oh my gosh, I love you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey, buddy, thank you very much for agreeing to be part of this episode. And as I said, you know, we'll be talking to you, I'm sure, in more detail and probably more often. I really love what you're doing, mate. I've got an immense amount of respect for you. I'm happy and proud to call you a friend. And likewise, you said to me before, keep doing it, mate. Please keep doing what you're doing because you're one of the people who are healing the industry. and, And I've got an immense amount of respect for you. Likewise, man. And the feeling is 100% mutual. And I look forward to to being on your show and also having you and, and Pat joining me on, on one of my live streams as well. Wonderful, mate. We look forward to that as well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, buddy. Much appreciated. Welcome back to the show. A veteran of the show before, Larry Crone. Thanks for joining us again, mate. Thanks for having me, buddy. Proud to be here. Oh, you're always welcome on the show. It was great to catch up with you in person at the conference as well. Yeah, it was great. I feel like I've known you guys forever. It was kind of just very natural, you know. It was, it was, I really enjoyed it. I know, right? Pat and I were saying exactly the same thing. It was kind of surreal that when we got to meet you in person, it's like, oh, we've known you forever. Yeah, it's awesome. That's, <laughs> that's one of the best things about the conference, what I really enjoyed, you know. It's funny for us too because there's people who meet us for the first time and because they hear us all the time, it's, it's like – we're part of the family or part of a friend group yeah. that, that's always been there. So I'm sure you get that as well because you've got like 7 million plus listeners around the world who listen to your content. No, it really was a, a pretty awesome week for me and it gave me the motivation I need to push forward a little harder. You know, it, it was really good to, to push past the burnout. It really was. Fantastic, mate. I'm really pleased to hear it. So obviously it's episode 100 and we're gathering some information from some of the top people and some of our friends in the industry. And as I said before, we're delighted to have you on the show. So I've got a question for you and that is what tool, technique, information or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? Okay. That's a great question. There's so many places you can go with that. I know it's very broadly defined. It it, it is. I actually really thought about it a lot, Glenn, you know, and there's only one thing that really popped out for me. I think a lot of people probably think I'm going to say the e-collar, right? Because you mentioned tool and it's, it's done very well for me. Right. 
But the one the one thing I really want people to know is I don't have success with the dogs because I'm good with an e-collar. You know, I have success with the e-collar because I'm good with the dogs, if that makes any sense. Yep. You know, and and so the one thing, the one moment in my dog training career that that really, really elevated me and changed the way I looked at dog training completely was, and I think it's probably for a lot of people, when Bart came back to the United States for the first time, 2009, Mm -hmm. 2010, somewhere around that, I made the 14-hour drive each way to go work with him. I had been following him for a while, and I was, you know, really interested in meeting him in person and working with him. Yep. And uh, that day changed everything for me because it opened my mind to so many different things, you know. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I didn't really use many tools. I, I trained with a leash and a, and a flat buckle collar. I didn't use food. I worked with mostly problem dogs, and I did very little obedience. And I was very successful for a long time. But that one weekend with Bart, and, and there were a lot of big-name trainers there, you know, I knew within the first couple hours there that I can do a lot more. Like there's no limit on what we could do with these animals. It was really, really mind blowing to me, you know? And, uh, I know it's a really broad answer and it might not be what you're looking for, but it did change everything because when Bart started talking about Napopo and, you know, started going into all of his theories and the way he does things, I started implementing that with everything I did. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything I always resorted to that. I mean, as recent as today, I'm always reaching back in. And back then, I only worked with problem dogs for the most part. That's what people thought I did. And I've done some weird things with with some really bad dogs, always thinking back about that system, you know, because I knew for a long time that you can't punish a bad behavior, a mindset behavior out of a dog. You just it doesn't work, you know. And it forced me to really dig much deeper than I ever have before to understand how the animal operates. And uh, it was truly that one weekend that had an unbelievable impact on me. But I think it was for a lot of trainers that we know. It, It changed their lives in the world of dog training that day. And, you know, I've gone back many times after that. And even Bart at one time said, why do you keep coming back? Mm. And it's because I always took something. And I haven't worked with a lot of trainers, you know, I really haven't. I haven't gone to a lot of seminars. I've always taken the things I've learned and I don't get to the end of it. I'm still trying to perfect what I learned from that first weekend. Mm. You know, it's, it's 10, 11 years later, you know what I mean? And, and so that, that has had the biggest impact on my dog training career by far. It, it really has. He's been a tremendous influence. I'd love to be able to spend time now with him and Michael as a team yep. because I know with the two of them together, every time I had worked with Bart back then, things got better and fresher and newer. And so I can only imagine. So the folks that are going to the Napopo school now, they're so unbelievable lucky, but I see what they're doing too. And mm. it's amazing. They're doing amazing things. So I know it might be a boring answer, but that has been the biggest impact on me by far. And that's why I, I continue to to give him him credit to this day because it's really important. I, I believe he deserves. I don't think if it wasn't for that first time, I don't think I'd be anywhere near 
what I have today in the industry. I really don't. So I'm very grateful, you know? Yeah, well, you're not going to get any fight on me on that because anybody that I've seen that's gone through Bart's institution and has paid attention to what he's teaching has really come out the other side a changed person. Like it's a pilgrimage that has improved the mindset, technique, and capability of many trainers. Yeah, yeah, there's there's no doubt. And and like I said, I see the the guys and girls coming out of the school currently, and man, they're doing some great things. They they really are. I mean, so I can only imagine where him and Michael as a team have taken it to today. I just it's great to see more and more people are recognizing it and jumping on and doing what they gotta do to go through the school, you know. And and I think sometimes think that that I'm kinda affiliated financially with, with them because I, I, I do, but I'm, I'm not, you know, when I find something great, I'm going to support it and promote it. And that's what the balloons have been for me. You know, it really, really has, which I guess on the other side too, the one thing that I preach a lot is the pet dog people, they have to learn the working dog side of dog training, you mm. know, and, and that in itself has been a spinoff from working with Bart, you know, I'm, I, I do pretty well these days because of the understanding of the working side dogs, the more complicated driven dogs. And, and I just hope more pet dog trainers start understanding that they have to learn that side of dog training if they want to have the, the best possible results that they can working with pet dogs. Mm. Well, here's an interesting fun fact is that for a lot of working dog people, that's their pet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, Glenn, it, it was probably, I don't know, seven, eight years ago where I started working with a lot of IPO people, but not training for IPO, fixing problems that they were having. Yep. But it was funny because they'd always come to me and say, my club can't know I'm here. I'm not allowed to train outside the club, but I haven't been able to fix this problem. And, you know, I did, I've always done well fixing problems, but a lot of times, like I said, I always resort back to things I've seen him do or talk about. And at one point I had eight people from the same IPO club and they were all saying, no one can know I'm here. You can't tell me, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a pet dog trainer. That's my bread and butter, but I appreciate and love the working dog side of things very well. And when I tell people dogs all learn the same, whether it's a highly driven sport dog or a regular family pet dog, they all work the same. And I tried to train every dog I get my hands on as a working dog. If I can get a, a little, you know, wiener dog to bite, I'm going to get that dog to bite. That's yep. always my goal, you know, and, and it all stems back from that first time, that one day. And uh, I'm very grateful, very, very grateful for that. Well, mate, that's a great epiphany. And I mean, it's wonderful that you can pinpoint a definition or a time in your career line that made it all come together for you. And I think that's most important for most of us is, and before we were talking about putting this together, you said that, you know, one of the great things is that you never stop learning. And I totally appreciate that because I, I'm a stickler for that myself. I think that you don't have to overload your mind with useless information, but you do need to know what's current and you should be experimenting with how to perfect your craft and make a dog well, help a dog live its best life. Yeah, and, and I think that's where a lot of people struggle, Glenn. I don't think they trust themselves enough to experiment. And trainers, especially young trainers, have to believe in themselves more. And they have to try to branch out and experiment. And they shouldn't try to emulate anyone, mm. you know. I don't try to emulate Bart or Michael. 
I've taken what they've provided and I make it my own. I have my own personality, my own quirks, and I don't do everything. Right. Like, I'm very slow to talk about Napopo because now that they have a school, I don't think I have, I don't feel like I, I have the right to say it. You know what I mean? So I'm always very respectful of that. But at the same time, people have to just take it and make it their own. Don't try to do anything exactly like someone else because you'll fail. You'll fail miserably, yep. you know, and uh, and the dogs don't know what science says or what you should be doing. And I think sometimes we all get caught up too much on science and definitions from the way the human sees things. Mm. And when we do that, we fail to see things the way the dog sees things. You know what I mean? I'm a total believer in the concept of use what works. Yeah, no doubt. I know that. No I know that sounds yeah. very simplified and some people might think it's a little contrived. However, if you look at that concept and, and apply it to what you've just spoken about in the last five minutes, if you take the best of the people that you've been apprenticing under or that you've you've gone to a seminar and you've found that there's been some institutional knowledge that you can apply to your training and you go back and you piece together the best of it and it's working for your dog and you're, you're finding that the communication you're having between you is highly successful, then how can you ignore that? You'd have to be a fool. Well, I think... Dog training usually is simple, Glenn, and I think we really overcomplicate things. I, I really do. I really think we make things more complicated than it has to be most of the time, you know? Yeah, well, it's got to be the application of knowledge and then the applied version of it. And I think if you piece those two together and actually get off your ass and go out there and do it, and, you know, when you see yourself making mistakes, uh, pull short and stop if you can, if you're aware of what you're doing or if, you, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have somebody that's following you around and, and advising you at the same time, take their advice, stop what you're doing and find the timeline where you need to correct yourself and go back there and, and start over again so the dog and you start enjoying the program again. Well, I think uh, if we all just focused on very clear communication and repetitions, it's I think people would be amazed how far that little simple thing goes in the dog's world, you know? Right. Hey buddy, that's a great amount of feedback from you as always really appreciate your time and your insight into training. And uh, I know that there's so many people who have benefited from your teaching and your generosity. And I think that given how much content you put out there, you're one of the most generous people that I've seen in the industry. And uh, I really appreciate you, Larry. I think you're doing a wonderful job. And the fact that you yourself, like many other great people out there, understand that there's a lot more that we can learn, a lot more we can do for our dogs. How can you argue with that? Well, it means the world to me, Glenn. Thanks a lot. I, you guys have been so supportive. And, uh, man, it's, not, it's something I don't take lightly. You know, it's truly appreciated. Thank you, my friend. Thank you too, buddy. So much appreciation. Thank you again. You got it, Glenn. Have a great one, my friend. Thanks, Larry. Peace. Okay, so it's episode 100, and we're joined from Maine. We've got Jay Jack on the line, one of our show favorites, of course. And welcome to the show again, Jay. <laughs> dude if this thing starts messing up i'm gonna throw it right out the window <laughs> we've just we've just I been around the block with every technical fault you could bloody well think about unbelievable if this thing goes through it's a miracle or yeah. it speaks to the skill level that you have as a sound man yeah it's it's going well so far so let's just pray to the gods that it keeps going Hurry, <laughs> right, quick fire the question let's go <laughs> okay the question is what tool technique information or realization has had the most impact on your career and why? Wow, man, 
that is, ooh. Yeah, I know. It's, Everybody's it's, it's stumped tough. on that one. <laughs> it's tough because the, the, the problem is it's like multifactorial. Like, like I am affected by so many different things. Like jiu-jitsu has affected me and the way that I teach and train and growing up with pit bulls and, and being around working uh, like game dogs has deeply affected me. And Chad had this huge effect on me understanding like the leash specifically, like for sure the way that I use the leash and the understanding of, of the, his whole concept of a dog's you're not done training till you can trust the dog at Liberty. Like that has a huge effect. Like mm. aspects of GRC are based like the SR is based on a lot of the stuff that I got from Chad. It's all that stuff. There's a, there's a ton of shit that has affected me yep. uh, super deeply. But I think, uh, I think, I think the thing, if I had to pick one thing that has had the most profound impact across the, the largest spread of training, mm. it's the concept of, of play-based training yep. or, or play in depth, like play, not as this, like, cause everybody plays with their dogs. Like everybody fucks around and plays with their dogs and mm. everybody uses a little bit of play as a reward event or they play tug or they play fetch, but like Ivan Balabanov, his views on the depth of play, how it's not just like some fuck along activity that you do for funsies or a little bitty reward event or whatever, like the depth of play has permeated like everything that I do, even though like Chad gave me the framework for the leash, the way that I view and the way that I handle leashes, I turn it into a game. Like I play a game with it. You know what I mean? Like yep. it's, it, even when I get something from someone else, like when I, I read Panks up stuff about blue ribbon emotions and I'm like, ah, that's really, really cool. And that's affected me deeply. Mm. And I, as soon as I see it, I start viewing, how does that affect the way that I play the game? Like, how does that affect the games that I play? You know what I mean? Like play-based training, like not when I say play-based, it's hard because I don't think people get it. Like when they, they, as a throwaway tagline, I go play-based training and they go, yeah, yeah, you like to have fun. And I'm like, no, you don't understand like the idea of play as a deeply psychologically beneficial and as a deeply motivating and a bonding experience and how you learn like play as a modality, like a very serious modality of training, the depth of play-based training is the thing that I think has affected me the greatest. Like that's something I got from Ivan mm. and something speaks to me in every facet because whether I knew it or not, that was, that was one of the things that was so beneficial about martial arts to me. That was one of the things that I, I've been in and around the edges of it. Even if I couldn't explain it, it's like a philosophy that you, like you, you, when I read about stoic philosophy the first time I was like, dude, you're saying all the things that I think like, yep. you know, like you've been, you've been, you've been prepared for the, for that idea your whole life, but you didn't have the words for it till somebody gave you the words for it. Right. Mm. So it's like, it feels like how I worked with dogs when I was 10 and it feels like how my dad worked with me when I was five. And it feels like how my jujitsu teachers helped me. And it feels like how my boxing coach helped me. It, it, it feels like it's always been there, but I didn't understand it and didn't have the words for it until Ivan gave me that framework. You know what I mean? So it's like, I have been affected by a million different influences and by a ton of different stuff, but I feel like that 
is the thing that runs that's the thread that runs through literally everything and kind of holds everything together because all these ideas from panks up and from chad and and whatever like uh, ideas from uh, uh sapolsky and like ideas i've gotten from millions of other trainers and tons of other people and tons of other influences the thread that holds them all together is the concept of play-based training to me anyway, mm. you know? Yeah. That's kind of come become your shtick um, of lately. Uh, and I stole that word from you shtick. Um, I haven't used that word for years and I heard you say it again, <laughs> but um, when, when we think of play-based behavior and training, you know, usually you're the default person who comes to mind these days. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because like people make this thing, I will always try to give back to my teachers, right? And somebody will be like, whoa, that's really unique. And I'm like, dude, it ain't unique at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, it ain't unique at all, dude. Like, Ivan's video, like his Obedience Without Conflict series that he came out with, I think that was like late 90s maybe. Mm. Like that, like, it's the, the, the second DVD in the set is called The Game. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, this is the engine that drives his training system. You know what I mean? And that was in the nineties, you know, it's not unique to me at all. You know, it's just, uh, I think I make a lot of noise. I think I get, I think I make noise. I think I get attention. And truthfully, I think I've, I've said this before on Chad, uh, the podcast we used to do, like, I think my biggest value is in being able, like I'm the presentation version of the for dummies book. like like i there's nothing i say that like there's nothing i say that like my none of my jujitsu is not something that i didn't get from my teacher or none of the like the cool ideas that i have the way i use the leash i got from chad the way his tug toy i got from ivan the way his food i got from ivan uh the way i use the tree pouch i got from from pat like the the i can list all of the places that I got all of the shit, like none of this is uniquely me. None of this is neat. Like I'm not inventive. I'm not that good. I'm not that, uh, unique or, or whatever the words are. What I'm really, really good at is taking an idea that makes 10 people go, I fucking don't get it. And I can go, look, 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 like close the book, turn that thing off. Look at me. And I can make three or four funny jokes embarrass somebody say something vulgar and then everybody's like oh i get it (laughs) i'm like yeah you know what i mean like i'm the walking for dummies book you know what i think jay is that i often talk about a lot of times when i'm working with ndtf students here we're often talking about the difference between being good and being great and Mm. i think that in a lot of cases somebody who is a great teacher is somebody who gets through to people in whatever manner they need to get through to people and that's what you know, I kind of, um, not kind of, I, I find you really entertaining when I watch you teach people. And I think you make people feel really excited about what's happening next. You know, they, I, I was saying this to you before when we were setting up for the podcast. I think people are just dying to hear what's going to come out of your mouth next yes. because you interject a lot of humor in what you're doing. And there's a good saying that people might forget what you did, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. And I know yes. that when I've you've done seminars here and I've seen you, you know, I watched you do it in the States and I was just in stitches watching you do it. You know, it was one of the most entertaining <laughs> it was one of the most entertaining talks at the seminar. And you you know, a lot of people come away from your your sessions going, Man, that was hilarious, you know. But not only was yeah. it hilarious, but people are picking things up. They're thinking about things differently because 
you know, you're challenging hearts and minds in different concepts of things. Like, you know, to take a, a flexi lead and, and, you know, inspire people to make that cool again, that's pretty damn fine. It took, it, yeah, I mean, it's funny because, like, the slide, were you there at the very beginning of it? No, Did I just walked in about 10 minutes after you started. Yeah, so if you didn't get to see the if you didn't get to see the thing, uh, the slide that was on the screen as everybody was coming in to set up, but this is at the IACP. <laughs> the slide on screen as everybody's coming in to, to get a seat said e collars should be banned because they're inherently dangerous. <laughs> that was the slide that was sitting up on the talk, and everybody was like, uh, you know what I mean? And then I'd start the thing, and I'd go. And I'd look at the thing and I go, oh, I'm sorry, wrong slide. And I'd hit the button and it switched and it said retractable leashes should be banned because they're inherently dangerous. <laughs> That's and hilarious. I'm like, raise your hand if the first slide upset you and then raise your hand if you've said some, you know what I mean? Like, it was just like, that's how we started the thing. It's just funny because it's like the process, everybody thinks that I'm doing something somewhat unique or even in my teaching, but it's like, I teach people the same way I teach dogs. Mm. Like it's play-based training. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've watched your um, functional BJJ videos too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I have to – I follow the same idea. If you give them – if a dog is not interested in what comes next, it's difficult to teach. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Like it's difficult to teach and it, you run out of – if you're relying on because you need to know this. Like if I did that presentation – and I'm like, look, here's the deal. Everybody, when they leave this room, is going to get quizzed. If you every answer you get wrong, you owe me ten dollars. Like they're going to pay attention, but they're not going to have fun, and yeah. it's not going to be memorable. And they're not going to want to come back tomorrow, and they're not going to retain it. They're just not going to retain it. But if I can make them engaged and make them have fun and make them like really want to know what comes next, like the goal with people and the goal of dogs are the same. If somebody walked in halfway through that presentation and said, sorry, power outage, we have to stop this presentation. People would have been pissed. And that's what I want to have happen with my dogs. Yeah. Halfway through a session, if I'm like, sorry, the tug toys broke guy, we got to put it away. I want them to be like, fuck, no, I wasn't done yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like, I apply those concepts to, to people and to dogs. Like I teach dogs the same way I teach people. I teach people the same way I teach dogs. No question. You know? Yeah. No, whatever you're doing, mate, I mean, you, you really got the magic sauce and I'm not blowing smoke up your bum. I love watching you teach people. And anytime I get the opportunity to sit in on what you're doing and, and what you're saying, it's, I find it really inspiring. And like I said before, you've just got that mannerism. You're kind of like a Viking philosopher, but um, with, with with great humor injected in it as well. And I think all those entities combined, people find that fascinating and entertaining, and it really helps people retain what you're talking about. It's funny. Somebody somebody yesterday, I was talking to him, and I swapped stories about something, and they were like, uh, they were like, man, you've had a really interesting life. And I was like, yeah, it's like a, it's like an X-rated version of Forrest Gump. <laughs> it's, just, it's, like, it's like if Forrest Gump was like written by the guy who saw, it would be like that. It's like that movie, you know? You, you got to write a book one day, mate. Some of the stories you've just told me when you've, you've been sitting in my kitchen while you've been here in Australia have just been beyond yeah. fascinating. It's funny, man. Like I get I the two things that I hear the most often, both of which scare me. 
which is a terrible excuse. One, people are like, man, you got to write a book. I've heard that a million times. I've tr- I've started, I've kicked the idea around. I've got a couple of, you know what I mean? Like outlines and little bullshit. Like I just, I've never pulled the trigger on it. Like I've fiddle fucked around with it, but I've never pulled the trigger on it. And I get the stand up comedian one all the time. People are like, you should go do stand up comedy. And oh yeah. Like both, yeah, for sure. I mean, you missed your calling things- as a comedian, but you, you found it as a dog trainer for sure. God, those things scare the hell out of me. It's like, the book thing is totally and completely like this is get psychological birdie. You'll have to help me. But like it's the, the book thing is like a weird glass ceiling sort of situation. Like, you know what I mean? Like I can fist fight for money, right? Like I can get in a room filled with people and talk a bunch of shit, right? Like I can, I can do a presentation. Like none of those things are beyond me. They're not above me. You know what I mean? Like that's, I belong in that space. Mm. You know, even, even when I present like at the ICP, I still feel like, I still feel like the dirty kid, you know, (laughs) uh, dancing for money outside of the nice restaurant. You know what I mean? But like, I still feel like I belong in that space. Like I'm supposed to be the grubby kid representing the hood rat scumbags. Like I am supposed to be that guy in that (laughs) It's not above me, you know what I mean? Yeah. But like for some reason, man, the thought of having a book on a shelf, like that ain't, do you know what I mean? Like that's what these other people do. Like that's not me, you know what I mean? Like I can't write a fucking book, you know what I mean? Like that's like, who the fuck am I? I'm just some scumbag kid from the South, you know what I mean? Like I can't write a book, which I know is a total bullshit. Like I get, I understand the the fallacious logic of that. Like I get it. I know that that's, but it for sure stifles me. It makes me go like, other shit like oh make a video yeah i'll make a video or i'll fucking make this website yeah no problem make a website i wrote a little ebook because ebook don't sound real (laughs) 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 that ain't on a shelf that's just an ebook that's a throwaway you can do that right but like the idea of a book on a shelf is just like that's like i feel like that would be like me trying to eat dinner at the nicest restaurant in the world or something like i just don't belong in that you know yeah it's probably because uh, you've lived that life and you don't think of it as fascinating or intriguing but you know there's scores of us when you've told your story either to us individually or as a collective that you know we've we've sort of sat around afterwards and said you know what about that story jay told or what about this thing that happened to him when he was a kid or the story about the tomato with your old man and you know like those things are like beyond fascinating you know is just in as a behavioral thing they're beyond fascinating yeah to me that's just like the way that life lives you know that's right but yeah that's right it's your life you've lived it so you you kind of look at it as contrived and think oh that's just you know that's just what happened to me as a kid but it's things that don't happen to you know regular people and it's just (laughs) it's beyond the experience that most people have yeah it's funny because it's like there'll be story time or whatever and people are talking, you know what I mean? And it's just funny. Cause like the shit that comes out for me, that's just like, Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but you know what I mean? Well, it's like for other people, it's like, Oh, you know that time that we did the fucking soapbox derby for boy scouts or something. Every, and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, Oh man, I remember the first time I got stabbed. And people are just, <laughs> <laughs> you see people like blinking and they're just like, what? you know what I mean? Or like, yeah, that's like the first time I went to jail or like, Oh yeah. You know, that sound that it makes when you do a, B or C to somebody and people are just like, 
what? <laughs> I remember when I thought the first time I broke somebody's arm like backwards. I remember like how that felt. <laughs> like how it reverberated through the bones. Like, like, you know, like when you turn the bass up really loud in a super big stereo, you like yeah. you feel the music in your bones. It's like that's what it feels like when you break somebody's arm backwards. You know, like you can feel it inside you. And but as I'm telling this, I'm like I'm just like talking, and but you see people like the face you're making right now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you see people's face like no, I don't know what the fuck uh, yeah, you're talking. Yeah, I haven't actually broken a guy's arm backwards. No, yeah, I mean that was, yeah, and that's like that's not the best, you know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, there's still there's still there's still shit you got to say allegedly before your story, <laughs> you know. So back to the dog training. <laughs> yeah, right. Go ahead. When in your career do you think you first had your like your holy shit moment? Like when you sort of thought to yourself, it's all coming together. It's making sense to me. Like I'm not having to try so hard. It's not sounding like double Dutch to me when someone's trying to explain it anymore. It's wow. It, yeah, it's tough because like a lot of that stuff is not. It's going to be a weird sounding moment, right? Like there were there were. The whole time I was coming up, I kind of thought I knew what I was doing. Mm. There've been a bunch of holy shit, I don't know what I'm doing moments. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. where you think it's like the floor gets pulled out from under you. It's like somebody told you that you're living in the matrix and you finally see it and you're like, oh shit, all this stuff I thought I knew, I just didn't get. Mm. So it's like the whole time I was a kid, like I knew how to live well with dogs. Like Amy Sadler says, like I was a really good handler, but I was not a good trainer. Like I didn't know how to train dogs, but I could handle the shit out of dogs. And I thought that meant something that it didn't really mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? I thought I could be helpful with dog. Like what I was really teaching people how to do is how to live with their dogs. And I was fixing a lot of people's problems by helping them learn how to live with their dogs. But I thought I was training dogs. Mm. But what I was doing was training people how to live with dogs. Right. And I didn't understand that. And then I ran into a dog that was like wildly human aggressive. And I didn't, my whole life was like, do you go put a bullet in that dog? Like that's, that's what you do with human aggressive pit bulls. And I was like, fuck, I don't want to shoot my dog. Like I love my dog and I've never dealt with this and I'm a good trainer. Like I can help. Right. Like, cause I've done all this work with all these dogs and I just was not making headway. And it was because I didn't know how to fucking train. Right. I knew how to handle, but I didn't know how to train and you couldn't handle it out of this dog. Like you had to train it out of this dog. And I was like, fuck, you know, I don't know what to do. And I wound up training with a real shithead who was like super heavy handed really charismatic and really charismatic and uses the desperation that people have when they're like in over their head with a desperate dog mm. and really charismatic and got me in a space of training that I am now kind of ashamed that I was in. And, but I was kind of like just following, like, I don't know, I don't know dog training. And if a, if a doctor tells you to cut off your fucking foot, then you're like, shit, I guess I have to cut off my foot, you know? And so like, I was kind of in this space that I was not proud of but I didn't understand that there were other ways. And my displeasure with that made me start looking at all the other ways. And once I started looking, then again, it was like the floor got pulled out from under me, like, fuck the stuff I'm doing. I don't need to be doing. There are better ways. And that was another like, Oh shit, I don't know what I'm doing moment. And then I met Chad and things started to go like, yes, this makes sense. And yes, I'm getting results. And now I'm, I, I'm starting to see, and I'm starting to understand and that felt better. Like I was kind of climbing a, a mountain towards clarity, 
But weirdly enough, this moment that really everything started making sense was the day I learned about using food from Ivan. And that's weird because Ivan doesn't even consider himself a food-based trainer. Like he'll say, like, I don't really use food that much. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like he's not, he's like, yeah, fuck that. Get on the toy. You know what I mean? Like he's, yep. he's the way to him, it's this throwaway thing that you do with some puppies and some dogs that aren't, you know what I mean? It's like this. Yeah. Yeah. There's also this other little passerby thing over here that I do. And I was like, holy shit like for some reason the way that he used food like the first thing that i saw was i was like this is crazy it's super unique it's super interesting that's amazing now i finally feel like i've always felt disconnected from food i understood toys i understood play i understood all the shit but food was just like blech. i was the guy that was like food is bribing and i don't like it yeah and i never felt articulate with it i never felt comfortable with it it never was in a paradigm that worked in my brain and then when I saw him, I had this thing where I was like, oh shit, that's exactly how you use toys. Like this thing that was amazingly complex and unique and interesting and like, whoa, like mind blowing. Yep. I had this weird realization that like, it's not really unique and interesting and mind blowing. It's basically the exact same fucking thing you do with toys. You just do it with food. Yep. And like once that weird like puzzle piece fell everything fell like not everything. I don't want to make it sound like I'm not this fucking, like I know everything fucking bullshit, but I started seeing, you know, that line everybody says like, Oh, you know, once you get to a certain point, you start seeing the similarities. Like we have more in common than we have different kind of bullshit. <laughs> I started seeing all the like, Oh, that's just the same as that. Mm. And Oh fuck, that's just the same as this. And like, now I see similarities and commonalities, not like vast differences. Yeah. It's called drawing to- distinctions sweet i yeah. did not know that yeah see well it's just shit. when you have an epiphany on these things that you kind of you see distinctions in what people are doing and you can start you you kind of can see the pattern in what they're doing but it becomes distinct in your knowledge like you become aware yeah. and you, usually you know people in a spirituality sort of mentality they call it when you become woke <laughs> <laughs> woke as fuck say that i've heard the kids say that yeah. but yeah i i for some reason when I saw Ivan use food, it changed. It definitely gave gave me this new modality, and now I use food all the time and whatever. But it 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 for some reason it was this crazy, unique, amazing thing, mm-hmm. and then stopped being that, and yep. it started being like, oh, it's just the same, like that that stupid. What's the Bruce Lee, uh, totally plagiarized Bruce Lee quote? It's like uh, Bruce Lee did a version of it, but originally it was Chuang Tzu cutting up an ox. Right? Bruce Lee's version was. When I was bad, a kick was just a kick and a punch was just a punch. Mm -hmm. And then when I became very good, I saw a million different ways to put, there's a vertical fist and a three quarter fist and this, you know, no hook kick and a crescent kick and like a million different kicks and a million different punches. And he goes, now that I'm an expert, punch is just a punch and a kick is just a kick, right? Like it starts to lose its differences once you get really good. And again, I'm not saying I'm really good, but what I'm saying is like, at that time I had all, there were so many, like you hear people say that all the time. They're like, there's so much different information in dog training. It's just so overwhelming. Like there's so many different approaches and it's fucked up because there's really not, (laughs) there's really not that. Yeah, but it's different descriptors. It's the way people explain it. That's the, that's the majority in differences is people explain it so many different ways. And I guess that's important in in some ways because, I mean, look, I've explained things to people and they've gone away and gone, oh, yeah, okay, and I can see they don't get it. And somebody will explain it in exactly the same way using different terminology and they'll instantly 
say to themselves, oh, that makes perfect sense. And it, you, it frustrates you as a trainer because you think, well, that's what I said, but you didn't say it in a way that made sense to that person in that in that moment. The most distinct example of that I've ever had was one of my one of my black belts, like this kid, Paul Gorman, right? He's been with me forever. And he's one of my black belts now. And he's like, he's been in the game for he's retired from fighting. Like I brought him up, gave him his first fight. Like he's he's now at the end of his career, you know what I mean? But it's like he's got gray hairs in his beard. It's fucking crazy because he was a kid when I found him. You know what I mean? But it's like this kid, I taught him everything he fucking knows. Like there's literally, there's no aspect of jiu-jitsu that he didn't get from or was influenced by me or whatever. And I'm teaching a class and he's only trained with me. I mean, he's like, it's as homegrown as it gets. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going through all of the examples of this move with this person and he's standing there watching and like, I'm a good teacher and he tries to learn how to teach as good as me. It's like, I'm definitely like the mentor figure and I'm struggling with this kid and I cannot get this idea across to this kid. And I'm using every analogy I can think of and I'm trying to help mold the kid's position with my hands. And I'm like visual, I'm doing auditory, I'm doing tactile, I'm trying my ass off to help this fucking kid. And Paul like sitting on a bench drinking like grape soda or some shit, just like offhandedly goes, it's like kickstarting a bike. And the kid was like, oh, and then immediately did it perfect. And I was, motherfucker, motherfucker. It's like, it's not that he knew more and it's not that he was a better teacher. It's not that he had some insight on the kids learning. Like he said it and then looked off. He, he just said it like, oh yeah, yeah. I know where that movie, I know the, I know the punchline to that joker. I saw that movie too. Like he just was like interjecting as part of the group in a conversation that everybody was having. Yeah. He, even know that he watched the result i think he just said it and then looked off and started talking about a movie or something like it was just nothing you know what i mean but like the fact that there was a way a reference there was a way to get like the information had a certain shape like a puzzle piece and the the hole in that kid's head was a certain shape yeah and if you just figure out how to line up the information you can get it in there you know what I mean? And that's the part about being a teacher that's that's so challenging and cool is like trying to figure out how the thought bubble above your head, how do I make what's yeah. the thought in my head, how do I make that appear above your head? Yeah, you know that's I mean? real that's really important information. That's sage advice. I really like that. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. So, so the other question I've got for you, just in closing, is what would you give as advice to new up and coming trainers? Like what do you think is something really important that they need to know? I feel like I'm a new up and coming trainer. That's uh, the problem. No, no, no. I still feel like, I still feel like a uh, young in the industry. I mean, fuck man. Well, it's I, good I, to feel I, like that because I mean, you st- like what you're describing is still your, um, your passion and excitement about being involved in the industry. I didn't try to, take dog training as an art form, as a craft. Like I was just like, I've been in dogs my whole life and I've fucked around and I've, I'm, I was that asshole. That's like, Oh, I'm really good with dogs and I can probably help you. But I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't take it as a craft until like 2010. You know what I mean? Yep. So it's only, been, I mean, it's, it, well, I guess it's been nine years. That sounds like a long time when you say it like that, but it's like, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it to me. It was like, I was like a month ago. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it feels like. It feels like I'm still, it feels like I'm still following giants around, picking up crumbs and putting shit together is what it still feels like to me. Well, uh, one of the things I, one of the 
um, realizations I've had in this industry is you can be a veteran of 20, 30, 40 years of experience in training and still know relatively nothing about it because you've just, you've developed lazy habits and sat on the sideline or you can be in it, you know, one, two, three, four, you know, five, six, whatever years and, you know, yeah. uh, pick it up incredibly. I mean, I'll use Pat as, as an example. He hasn't been in this industry mm. a long time at all and yet he's really making some headway in the industry because you know, like he talks about heart and soul and training, but he puts heart and soul into putting his work together. And there's, you know, there's a lot of other, well, not a lot of others, but there's other trainers out there who are doing similar things, you know, like they really invest time and passion and energy into loving and investigating what they're doing, but not just investigating it, understanding what they're doing and getting out there and actually applying it too. So it's the, you know, it's the mental collaboration or understanding of it and then actually putting it into physical sense you know like getting out there on the field and making it happen that would be honestly that would be the advice if there was anything to say to people like that to me would be the advice is that like don't lose don't lose your passion for learning like learn like there's this thing that when you're first getting started in something Mm -hmm. like people like they watch a bunch of videos and they get super excited and they write down all these ideas and they're like, Oh my God, did you see so-and-so's fucking video about that thing? And Holy shit. Wow. You know what I mean? And they get super excited. And then at some point for most people, that shit just goes away. Like they get like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. It's like blue belts watch jujitsu videos. Like it's like how many hours a week do you think you watch jujitsu videos? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, man, and get into it and like, holy shit. And did you see that thing? And wow. And like, it's just nuts. And then like dudes get black belts and it's like, I mean, the joke in the, the joke in the jujitsu world is blue belt, man. People get blue belts and they just go away. Like there was an interesting video, like where somebody gets their blue belt and it's like the teacher is like, here, congratulations. And then as he's talking to him, the dude fades. He's <laughs> <laughs> talking to him and then he's like, wait, where'd you go? Yeah. It's like, like there's this thing that happens when people are at a certain stage where they're just like their passion is about learning and discovering and passing information. Mm. And then at some point somewhere that dies and it either becomes a job or they just go like, I'm set. Like I know and I'm set and and I'm done. You know what I mean? And like, I think both of the things had, both of those things to me are like, I, I don't ever want to feel like an, I am good. Not that I'm not good. I don't, I, I mean, like I'm good at jujitsu, but I have the same thing. Like I want to know, I want to learn. I'm always working on my curriculum. I'm always working on my techniques. I'm always working on like, I came up with a new way to teach a, 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 the most basic pass that you can imagine. I came up with a new way to teach it tonight. Just like because I'm still into the idea of coming up with new ways to teach. Like one of my black belts that owns his own gym was visiting tonight and was like, Holy shit. When did you start teaching it like this? I'm like, I just did it for the first time just now. And he's like, what the fuck? Grabbing his notebook and like writing it. He's like, dude, I'm doing this tomorrow in class. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. Like, but I'm like a kid figuring out a new BMX trick or something. Like I remember what it was like to be a kid riding a BMX bike and you're just pumped try to, can I do a second spin? Can I do another <laughs> thing? How many blocks can I add to the jump? You know, you're just like, you're always trying to figure out some new bullshit. It's like, that's what jujitsu feels like. That's what dog training feels like. It still feels like trying to figure out the new trick on the bike. Yep. You know what I mean? It still feels like 
some kid trying to figure out a new magic trick or something like that's what it feels like to me. And I feel like that's where invention comes from. Like when I watch Ivan work, dude, Ivan looks like a, I don't give a fuck how old he is and how long he's been in the game. He looks like a 10 year old boy when he plays with dogs. Yep. Like he fucking loses himself and like, and you can see him like excited, like a kid that does a new skateboard trick. Like every time he works a dog, he's, he's thinking and he's, but he's in that zone of like a kid coming up with skateboard tricks or something. Like he's like pumped about the art and science. It's not, but it's not like, uh, it's not dry. Do you know what I mean? Like he's still pumped about it. Mm. It looks like what people look like when they're one year in the industry, how they're excited about training. But then at year eight, they're like, salty old hats and they haven't grown and they haven't added anything new to their game and they haven't like they've lost it like it's become that like time to make the fucking donuts yeah you know what i mean and i think the really really good people don't lose their passion yeah i think if you can think about maintaining your passion then i think it'll work better you know what i mean like i think that's the most that's the best advice i could give to anybody is don't lose your passion about it like don't let the mundane don't let the, the the line I say to people sometimes is don't let the mud break your heart and search for the gold. Yep. You know what I mean? Because that's what happens. People are like, at first you're excited. Ooh, I'm going to find some gold. And you sift through a bunch of buckets of mud. So you're <laughs> pumped about eating. There might be some gold in that shit. You know what I mean? And then after a while, you're like, fuck, this much gold for every 25 buckets. This is bullshit. And then after a while, you're just like, fuck it. I, I don't even need this anymore. This is bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not doing another 20 buckets. I've had enough of this bullshit. Exactly. And it's like the mud broke your heart. You know, yeah. Like I think if you can analogy. what it feels, I think if you can remember what it feels like to be on that tenth bucket and being like, "Fuck, this might be the one." <laughs> but what's that shit you guys say? Like the struggle can't outweigh the hope. Yeah, know? the struggle can't outweigh the hope. Yep. Yeah, you gotta you gotta find ways to keep your passion. Yeah, absolutely. but that's in anything, man. That's in your diet. That's in your marriage. That's in your hobby that's in your job like that's that is the key to life i think is don't like find a way to keep your passion alive yeah damn yeah. straight hey jay thank you so much sage advice as always i uh, really appreciate you joining us again on episode 100 and looking forward to much more conversations congratulations on the 100th episode and congratulations on the show like i was telling you before we started recording i feel like uh, the canine paradigm is kind of the dog training podcast. I think like it's the best one out there for sure. I think that it is, I think for a, I think for a long time, the, the show that Chad and I had the dog training conversations, I think in the beginning of the podcast space, I think it was kind of the go-to dog training conversational style podcast. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, since we've stopped doing it, I think you guys have, you know, flourished. I think you guys have found your, your, your groove and found your, 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 your tribe, you know what I mean? And like, mm. man, you guys have hit your stride and like the show's really turned into kind of the best thing out there. I think, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's the, it's the best show of this genre that's on the air right now. I think, you know, Mate, I really appreciate that. I mean, coming from you who, you know, like you said, you, you and Chad, ran a very successful podcast for years and you know because of you you kind of shaped our show into becoming what it is uh, i spoke to pat about that the other day you know like i sort of picked this up from josh moran and dave putman from philosophies and madman that that was the inspiration yep. but i i think yep. they were inspired through you guys which you know like it's like that six degrees of separation so it's yeah i really <laughs> appreciate it mate it's really nice to hear and the great thing about it is we're doing it 
because we enjoy it and we never thought that two buffheads from Australia would ever really get the following and the interest around the world that it's been attracting. But I think that's a collaboration of being able to spend time with people like you and other guests that have gratefully been able to get them on the show and being able to hear their advice and what they do and what's important to them in training and you know their backstories and so forth. So hopefully we can still provide that content that people like hearing they're interested in and keep it funny and keep it relevant man i look forward to it every week uh, every time you guys are a little bit slow i get all bent out of shape and then i remember <laughs> what it was i remember what it was like to get those emails like where's it at like, yeah it but, happens uh, but yeah to it every week man uh, i think you guys have a great show and i uh, wish you the best and we'll see you at episode 200 thanks buddy so, very much appreciated right on man i'll talk to you guys later we'll do Well, if you've made it this far, you've made it to the end of the 100th episode of The Canine Paradigm, and what a journey it's been. And we'd like to thank all of you, every single one of you who have rated, shared, subscribed, and liked our show. Thank you so much, everybody. We really mean it. And for those of you who have supported us through Patreon, I can't thank you enough because it's made such a huge difference to the product that we're trying to produce, the show quality, everything. If you would like to continue to do that, we would appreciate it. That's the way people can help us on the show. If you want to help us out, you can encourage people to join Patreon. You can donate to the Canine Paradigm through Patreon, or you can wear some of our merch through Teespring. You can find each one of those locations by searching the Canine Paradigm on Patreon or Teespring, or you can find links on our website or the Canine Paradigm discussion group. Once again, guys, Pat and I, thank you from the bottom of our heart. We couldn't have got this far without you and the amazing guests who agreed to come on our show and be interviewed. Can't thank you enough either. We're looking forward to making as many more shows as you want to listen to. But once again, thank you so much. Looking forward to much, much more. Here comes the music. (laughs) 